For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. There's no place to escape to. This is the last talk. On the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. Home Harbor. Ha! Home Harbor. Oh, also, a lot of pushback. A lot of pushback. Lots of pushback. From what? Killian Murphy? FDR, my friend. What's the pushback? Manifest Destiny. That doesn't make any sense. Native American. That makes stuff. zero Expansionism. sense. That makes zero sense. He didn't do that. That was You're t- that thinking was about your Teddy, Teddy, that's Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt. That's Teddy Roosevelt. That's Teddy Roosevelt. Buddy, Whoever is saying that Franklin Roosevelt my, is, has no understanding, DMs. your DMs are wrong. Yes, concentration really. camps for the Japanese. We're going to be talking about that. That and they wasn't him either. And they were not concentration camps; they were internment camps. Yeah, they were things. like a waiting area. It was like a waiting room for oh, justice. A lot yeah. of controversy. And we're going to be talking about the internment camps on this episode. But yeah, the everything you were talking about before—that's all Teddy Roosevelt. That's like the 1800s. No, it's not. It's early 1900s. It's might as well. Birds be. of a feather. <laughs> Are they related? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, distant, co- they're like fourth cousins. Um, or no, they're third cousins. I like Teddy. Teddy created the National Park Movement. Yeah. It was, um, what is the thing? Because like Teddy or Eleanor Roosevelt was Dang Teddy on. Roosevelt's niece. Uh, and Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt were actually cousins. Wow. Cool. But like third, they're like third cousins, second yeah, cousins, yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was you the, could dip. You could dip your <laughs> wig. There was the oyster. cousins. Yeah. Because there were like two warring factions of Roosevelt's. There were the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's. That, oh, that was Teddy Roosevelt's. And then there was the Hyde Park Roosevelt's. That was Franklin Roosevelt's fancy, family. The fancy Roosevelt's. The fa- well, well they it's, both it's arguable fancy. as to actually the well, oyster. Teddy Roosevelt was a rich kid that threw himself into fighting because he wanted to experience life. Yeah. Because he was a sickly child. And and he went get action. That was yeah, his yeah, catchphrase. Yeah. Get and action. Get FDR action. is like get these knees out of here. FDR was uh, a nerd. Like he was unliked, unpopular. Um, which is like he didn't figure out how to be like a guy until he was in his like thirties or forties. There, yeah. There's no way he just trained everybody. Like you know how like my dog trained us to like lift her up the stairs, right? Like so <laughs> yeah, she goes. That. I'm she sure now knows. That. She's figured out. Like oh. Oh, I could just wait by the stairs. You'll just lift me up. You think maybe some way, shape, or form. Yeah, he was just he would FDR kind of told everybody, hey, what if I just sit? That's true. All the time. Mm-hmm. He would just fold himself into a bellwaiter. I, this is my main conspiracy theory thrust <laughs> yeah. of this entire series. Yeah. yeah. As a he could walk, 
He was lying about it to get clout on TikTok. Well, I don't know if it really worked <laughs> I think out. It was a big deal. No, it didn't work out for him. No, no, no. In the end, he did die, but yeah. we all do. Yeah. We all do. Is that how we're going to start? That's I how we're going to start. Oh, I really, right. really Welcome guess so. To the last podcast on the left, everyone. Ben hanging out with Marcus and Henry. A lot of Roosevelt talk. Mm, I didn't know it was going to be so saucy up top. No, oh, it gets it gets saucier and saucier. Nice thing about Franklin Roosevelt's legs, you could eat ketchup right off him. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> We are men. No, <laughs> nobody's safe. Nobody's Rose safe. For that nobody's former president. Safe. Still lives better than all of us. Um, but the beginning of this episode, you got to remember what we now know, right? Because we're doing Manhattan Project. Like, yeah. well, you know, you know, it's about history. It's heavy. But remember right now where we're at in the show, it's about a couple of years before the real point of the Manhattan Project which was to invite aliens into our mm. awareness. Mm. They Very are nice. now, it was our knock on the door wow. to the, all of the various interdimensional creatures sure. that are living in our oceans generating UFOs by spec for each this various pilot great. built yeah. for their nervous system to go out and examine us when we do it. It's 1933. It was the first object that they found. It was in Italy. Do you see the blood vessel, the UFO I, blood vessel that pops when he starts talking about nonsense? It's I, real. I see the blood vessel. I also see our credibility melting away. No. Melting away. <laughs> Crushes in the front speaking. of the news. the fucking number one whistleblower since fucking who's the guy that did the whistle in you know what um, we're gonna do? Uh, Crazy Train. <laughs> that's the number. That's a number one. That was that was uh, Rhodes, the guy uh, Randy who died. Rhodes, Randy yeah. Rhodes. Don't Tragedy. get into small planes. Speaking of UFOs today. Speaking of melting, we're on to the <laughs> Manhattan Project Part Two. Part Two. Now, American research into atomic weapons had technically began long before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. But in truth, it was a half-hearted effort that wasn't much more than a series of meetings and studies that were keeping the project in governmental limbo. If you want to get into your conspiracy head, just uh, mm. look up the S-1 committee. It's an interesting group that FDR will put together to develop the Manhattan Project. But old Vanover Bush, mm. he is oh, yeah. around each one of these corners skulking, wondering, when do I... <laughs> I get to be president. <laughs> mm -hmm. Come on over, come on over, Van Over. Indeed, what a game of Red Rooster that would be. What's it called again? Red Rover. Yeah, yeah Red Rooster's <laughs> the game where you pin a man down and everybody tries to cover his back with cum. <laughs> oh cum. my goodness, cluck cluck indeed. But by September of 1942. Almost a year after Pearl Harbor. I'm just keeping us on track. <laughs> I know what you're up to. America got serious about its nuclear program when faced with intelligence that erroneously told them that the Nazis were a hair's breadth away from discovering the secrets to atomic weaponry. Uh-oh, you unlocked a secret memory. Eggs. Erroneous. Erroneous. <laughs> yes, it's because he used the word erroneous. Yeah. It's from Ernest. Goes to camp. And Ernest goes to camp. Oh, Eggs erroneous. <laughs> it's from the two guys. It was Vern and the other guy that was the big fat guy uh -huh. and then the other guy with the scrunched up the, face. That had no teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's and, just hop right into it. it really, let's really just get right into it. Uh, but you also remember the Nazis, the science for this was born in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. It was there ready to go. So you could see why everybody thought that the Nazis had the jump. A lot of, of great people were born in Nazi Germany, weren't they? Huh? They were born. <laughs> Let's roll forward <laughs> to the Germany astroturfing of history. Later, after the Nazis, you mean. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Hitler's children, as they're called. <laughs> God. <laughs> they truly are. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's great. And listen to the upcoming series on Krautrock. 
on No Dogs in Space for more on that. Ah, yes. She's weird. <laughs> but to head up what was no doubt a massive project, the government chose a man named General Leslie Groves. Yeah. Yep, yep, he is definitely looking like a pig in fatigues, but he was the man who got the job done. Oh, not a Matt Damon. No. Oh, also, let's do right now up top, Killian Murphy did not His know. His name is Killian? It's Killian, Killian, Killian Murphy, which kind of makes it more goth and cool. It's nice, but this is my official... Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. His parents named him Killian. It's a very common it's Irish a, name. It's an Irish name. Yeah, it's a common Typical. Irish name. Yeah, that sounds about right. God. <laughs> Let's just get right into it. Let's just hop right in. Now, Groves was a decisive man who hardly ever took more than an hour to make even the most complicated decisions. I like it. Groves was so confident in his own abilities that he was often quoted as saying, If I can't do the job, no man can. You can't be that confident. It took him an hour to order at Starbucks. Make a choice. <laughs> no more than an hour. Oh, okay. Like, well, no more making, than an hour. He was okay. making bigger decisions than that. They said the thing about Leslie Groves right. is that he knew how to bring the spam to the front lines, mm -hmm. which is kind of a euphemistic the term. shoulder. Well, just the idea of like, he could figure out how to get things or he could figure out how to get shit done. He's a logistics master. Okay. And he was also a massive dickhead. Mm. Makes sense. Yes. That's partly because he was arrogant, extraordinarily arrogant. But his arrogance was only part of what made people hate him. What truly made people's blood boil was the fact that 99 times out of 100, Leslie Groves was absolutely right. But you know, the problem is with this guy not understanding office culture. The thing is called make it look like you're working. Oh, <laughs> why yeah, are you yeah, making yeah, like yeah, you know when the yes. guy shows up, he's new and he's just like, oh, oh, what I'm working I'm here for this. And Dick McFuck's pancake shit. <laughs> and then that's where you actually shit you eat you drink the batter and you shit the pancake on the Marcus, right side. Marcus, have the you plate. been to Dick McFuck's pancake shit? Because actually it's not that bad. It's not that bad, but Rory, <laughs> new Rory, he's a little annoying. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I actually would base it all on the FUPA. Because Leslie mm. Groves has truly one of the most important fupas in all of history. A power fupa. There's yeah. something about a fupa that, like, on one day, back in the day, yeah. it denoted responsibility. Yeah. A stalwart nature. Yeah. But now, you're just Chris Christie in a baseball uniform. Oh, my God. Which is God, unfortunate because they have the same body. They do. Wow. Well, I have no... Chris Christie's far beyond. I would put Leslie Groves more... Like, because Chris Christie has, like, a Tweedledum body. Yes. Yes. Leslie Groves is more of a penguin body. Oh, yeah, And I'm yeah, talking yeah, yeah. old-school penguin, because even if you look at his face, he has that nose that comes out to the point. Point, he does. Yeah. But Groves was notorious for bad first impressions. Mm. But more often than not, everyone around him had to swallow their pride because Groves very simply got shit done. For example, Groves had been in charge of all domestic army construction during World War II, which was basically the infrastructure that made America the industrial powerhouse of production that made us one of the big dogs of the war effort. Big dogs to eat! Thank you, ladies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All the men are away. The ladies come out to work. Yeah, I, I googled Rosie Riveter the other day. Holy hell. She was hot. <laughs> Yeah, I like a girl with some guns. Yeah, it was Rose, Rosie Riveting, Pamela. <laughs> also, this guy looks like a fat version of that one dude who did all the scary voices. Remember that guy with the Mel Blank? No, not Mel Blank. <laughs> Mel do, you Blank. Think, do you think Bugs no, Bunny guy. is a scary voice? Stop it, Marcus! Don't even bring it up. The guy who started it, the guy who did the beginnings of the of the fantastic hit song by the really healthy uh, intellectual. Oh, you're Michael talking Jordan. about Vincent Price? He does yeah. look like a fat Vincent He's Price. He's a fat Vincent Price. Yeah. Michael Jackson, sure. by the way. Way. Vincent mm -hmm. Porks. 
<laughs> well, Groves oversaw the building of camps, depots, army bases, munition plants, hospitals, airplane factories, and most impressively, Groves was the dude who built the Pentagon. Yeah, he was, again, he's a go-to guy for getting massive projects done. And wow. getting them done domestically. Yeah. Less impressively, when we're talking about domestic camps, Groves also oversaw the construction of the Japanese internment camps that wrongfully imprisoned 120,000 Japanese American citizens throughout World War II mm-hmm, mm-hmm. out of a question of loyalty. I was yeah, hanging right. out with a with a, a friend of our family and uh, they every year they go down and they do this dance that is a theme around an army base that was throwing a big dance around the time of Pearl Harbor, when Pearl Harbor happened. And right after that, they uh, mm. basically, uh, everybody that was on the coast was in a constant panic about getting attacked again. So back in the day- On the West Coast. On mean, the West yeah. Coast, yeah. Everybody there was like, they threw a big dance and then it got, it famously got interrupted by the, uh, uh, the there was like a false alarm and there was a bunch of sirens and every, the air raid sirens and everybody ran away and it stopped the dance. So now what they do is they do a yearly sort of like, we're going to do that same mm. dance. We're going to dress in period costume and do swing dancing and stuff. And she says, and it's amazing because there's this one Japanese family that always comes in full internment camp costume and they dance and they just love being a part of it. And I was like, yeah. do they? Well, that's kind of nice. Really? That's a friend of the family. Huh? Yeah. It really keeps a it going. friend of the family. Are yep. you serious about that? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't know. I thought, they should. I thought that's, that's like, not a bit. No, no. <laughs> and it's like doing a dance in Italy where you get a couple of guys in full concentration camp, like pajama outfits. Remember Robin Williams and Jacob the Liar? <laughs> Horrible there movie. You go. Horrible movie. All right. Well, yeah. everyone has fun in a different way, don't they? My God. Yeah, it sounds like the Jerry Lee Lo- or the the Jerry, Jerry Lewis, Lewis the Jerry Lewis concentration camp. Camp clown movie. That's good. That, uh, next year it might go into public domain. They're uh, saying that we might be able to see it next year. That's wow. incredible. The yeah, day the, the clown cried. The day the clown cried. Okay. But regardless of his sins, by July of 1942, Leslie Groves was overseeing a million men and women who were dedicated solely to the war effort, and he was spending around eight billion dollars in the process. Ooh. But part of what made this Herculean effort possible was the fact that Groves spent zero effort in the Human Resources Department. Yeah, man, no room for that shit, man. Tell me you're building a goddamn Pentagon. No, HR is going to get in the way of all of the war crimes. That's the idea. (laughs) (laughs) He was demanding, abrasive, sarcastic, disrespectful, and was described as a son of a bitch and the biggest asshole in the military by more than a few people. You know how big that asshole has to be to be the (laughs) biggest in the military? But he was also, like so many people in this story, brilliant in his own field, an incredible construction foreman and a genius at organization. And if not for him, the Manhattan Project would not have succeeded. It is interesting Mm. because he did not want to do the Manhattan Project. No. He was one of those guys that was real excited to go kill people. He was like, send me to Europe. I want to go fight. I'm done with this shit. And they're like, we actually have this thing that is going to end the war faster than anything that we do when we go over to Europe. Like, this weapon right. is going to end it. And he was of the school class where he says, like, weapons don't end wars, people end wars. Yeah. So he was he th- actually started this pretty kind of skeptical that this was going to yeah. even do anything. Well, isn't that interesting? They're both right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, I mean, he saw it as a demotion. When he was given the job, he had access to $600 million per month. Hmm. And and that was all just to get projects done. But at the outset, the entire budget for the Manhattan Project was the relatively smaller sum of $100 million. Hmm. Oh, how's he ever going to make ends meet with that? Hey, it's not, 
it's not his personal salary. It's six hundred million per month versus one hundred million total for well, an entire project. It's relatively smaller. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah but they're gonna David Lynch him. Yeah. Which is they're gonna show up because when David Lynch did season three of Twin Peaks, he just told them how much more money he needed each week, mm-hmm. and they were like, "What?" And so he did not pay attention to the yeah, budget. The creation of the world's most powerful bomb is a lot like season three of Twin Peaks. <laughs> I, there's a lot of other With, comparisons I'm gonna make today. Which episode eight included an absolutely wonderful yeah, atomic it's bomb explosion real, using cracking the world open? <laughs> yeah, Bob game for the fucking bomb. David yeah. Lynch eats the same lunch every single day. Yeah, and uh, yes, he does. And actually, for that episode, the music that's played in the background of season eight, when the atomic bomb is season set three, off, episode eight, season three, episode eight. Uh, what that song is is I think it's called like. Lanotni, something for the victims of Hiroshima. And it's supposed oh. to sound like the screaming of everybody who died all at once. Well, it's a great that, scene. Yeah. That's a great gift to them. They're going to love that song. <laughs> it's called Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> Basically, Groves figured that he'd finally pissed off too many people in the Pentagon. That's why he was being put on the Manhattan Project. Mm. And again, he was the guy who was responsible for building the Pentagon. See, a lot of people in the military saw the idea of an atomic weapon as a little wacky. Partly this was believed out of ignorance and partly it was believed out of arrogance. Mm. Basically, they thought no stupid fucking scientist is going to make my Navy obsolete. (laughs) Not the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, therefore, a lot of military brass figured that an atomic bomb project was an almost guaranteed failure. Hmm. So they took a brilliant yet unlikable manager and sidelined him, thinking that the experience might teach him some humility. But with a guy like Groves, spite is the strongest fuel you can give him. To most people. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. (laughs) Oh, indeed. He therefore threw himself into the Manhattan Project completely. And if he hadn't, the entire operation would have died on the vine for good or ill. Hmm. Now, contrary to the belief that the project's name was randomly chosen, General Groves followed the custom of naming Army Corps of Engineers projects for the city in which they were located. And as it happened, the first offices for this project were on Broadway and Chambers Street, right near City Hall in downtown Manhattan. There you go. Local boy started with 12 people and it was thus christened the Manhattan Project. It's kind of like when people name their kids after where they were conceived. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you ever meet somebody Trunk. named like Chevy dealer? Or, yeah. Yeah. Outside of Coney Island. You ever met a Coney Island? Name is yeah. Trunk Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> now, if this was going to be done right, Leslie Groves needed a head scientist who wouldn't just research atomic energy, but who could actually build an atomic weapon. Paradoxically, mm. though, he chose a theoretical physicist named Robert Oppenheimer. Mr. J.R. Oppenheimer, he's wow. in there, and his main lament, doesn't anybody care about learning? <laughs> I don't think they do. I wish that they would. Numbers are better than people. Well, you're going to give them two really big examples to learn from. <laughs> now, growing up, Oppenheimer was remembered as being a, quote-unquote, repulsively good little boy. I could be better. (laughs) Repulsively good. What does that even mean? You know, when someone is so good, you know, they're conniving. Mm -hmm. Well, he was a genius. He was truly a genius from a little, as a little boy. And he just, he loved learning. Yeah. Well, later on, he would say that his childhood did not prepare him for the fact that the world was full of cruel and bitter things. Again, like the aforementioned Michael Jackson. (laughs) It gave him, in his words, Maybe like also like Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. no normal way to be a bastard. That's what he said. 
and that he just threw himself. He came from well, very wealthy family that uh, escaped from. They didn't, didn't. They came from Germany. They moved to the Upper West Side in New York City. They were very well off. He was educated at all the finest schools. He was a very spoiled boy. He that sounds they like viewed. a bastard to me. No, well, <laughs> they looked at him as their precious, very bright son. They said immediately, as soon as he showed up in school, I started reading American Prometheus, which is a really great book, but it's fucking too long. Yeah. It's 1,200 pages. That's a lot of pages. Um, and But the whole, he... He didn't know what to do. He literally came out brilliant and immediately was like an other to the other kids because, again, mm. he was born a dweeb. Yeah, he's a Martian. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Fly from your grave. My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Jackie Zabrowski. She shops all year thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it, but guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown. All right, give the moms in your life an aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do. And the memories keep cycling and I get emotional. And we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy. And that is not sad. That is celebratory. So you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Yeah, we do. Do you love saving money? Oh my God, you bet. Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. That's amazing. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. It's just a better way to watch TV. Get with it, people. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning that your children or significant other can't ruin your queue. Never miss a minute of shows like, oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. You're going to watch it. You're going to love it. You're going to get involved with it. And it's an extravaganza. You're going to love it. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with your seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash left. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash L-E-F-T to get 50% off your first month. Well, while earlier documentaries about Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project in general, they gave a more idealized version of Robert Oppenheimer. He's a strapping, sporty man. But- Huge cock. Heavy <laughs> balls. Well, he was one of those guys who's lanky and tall, so you know he actually probably was packing. Yeah. 50-50 shot. 50-50 shot of like a big, gross dick. I am more inclined to believe five foot seven and under. That's how they've been able to stud. Um, they do have longer ding dogs. Technically, I'm giving you a compliment and your people. I'm fine. And then <laughs> six foot nine and then gr- just growing like a potato. Uh-huh. Yeah. They all it's like honest tool. Oh, sure. <laughs> Five foot seven and six foot eight and above. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, later biographies relented and pegged Oppenheimer as a frail, frequently ill child who spent most of his time collecting minerals and writing poems. Did none of you like looking for barium? <laughs> he really well, was like obsessed minerals? with minerals. minerals. I, what do you mean? How do you call it? What do you do? Go down to the it's goddamn rocks. Park? 
No, it's rocks. It's just rocks. He collected rocks. Jesus, what they're a minimal. Sad. He's, what a sad childhood. I'm pretty certain that Dan Aykroyd based a lot of uh, Egon on J. Robert Oppenheimer because you remember he was just like when he scrapes the gunk off a thing and he's like, "This is for my collection of molds and spores." Like <laughs> it's the same no, shit. That's what he. That's what he does as a hobby. He collects yes. spores, well, molds, and fungus. Yes. <laughs> that is better than minerals. <laughs> well, they're just they're pretty rocks. Okay, they're very great. pretty rocks. Great. <laughs> Awesome. I hope you guys like basalt. <laughs> I'm about to take some now. But Oppenheimer grew up and he subsequently killed it academically at Harvard. And he went mm. on to become a highly respected yet unhonored theoretical physicist. No Nobel Prize. Why yeah. not? And that's weird. It's like one of those things where, to me, I imagine the Nobel Prize is this like massive crazy thing you know mm -hmm. but it's kind of like how when you work in show business in los angeles and you start to see like how the emmys and all this stuff are like work functions yeah in that world the nobel prize is just more like yeah well jerry got one they literally <laughs> are like the way they treat it they were like right. it's a it's a thing that you're supposed to get that is supposed to show that you are now like crazy it's legit also, it's also part of a massive cover-up because a lot of people that have wanted or war war mongers but he did one he didn't get it yeah well think about it this way oppenheimer not having a nobel mm -hmm. it's kind of like leo never getting an oscar well he finally did get it for the revenant but he didn't really deserve it for the revenant he was better in wolf yeah exactly it's not it's more of a lifetime achievement <laughs> it was it was made more but thank you leo yes. for your contributions yeah well, by 1942, when Leslie Groves was on the search for a scientist to head the Manhattan Project, Oppenheimer was 38 years old and teaching at UC Berkeley. Now, mm. one fellow professor at UC had a harsh view of Oppenheimer's overall vibe, said that he was always nervous. He moved with an odd, half-jogging, mm. arm-swinging gait. Mm. Uh, that's not nervous. That's motivated. You got to get there. A strange guy. Yeah, he always cocked his head just a little bit to one side, and one shoulder was always slightly higher than the other. But then he always got his big hat on. Like, mm -hmm. he's got his pork pie hat because, and I know why now, if you've seen his hair. Yeah, is it wiry? He looks like Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> well, that's his not hair so bad. sticks. Straight up. I am pretty, again, another point to, I think it, Egon is based on J. Robert Oppenheimer <laughs> because the hair goes straight up. Well, this professor went on to say that Oppenheimer looked simultaneously like a young Einstein and an overgrown choir boy. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. What a combo. Also had horrible teeth, yeah. had a Good. constant cough, chain smoked Chesterfields, okay. uh, and was emaciated because he'd just forget to eat. Uh, Marcus, are you just describing yourself from 2012? <laughs> he really did. He really, the only thing that's changed is the cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, I got my teeth fixed. I know the yeah, teeth. Is, just, oh my, the made-up made issue it's in Marcus's nice. life. He was too nice to make up uh, other things about him. I don't even, uh, I don't even, you look great. You look great. Also, we love it. Sandra Bullock, that was the worst Oscar ever given out to Blind Sons. Oh, yeah, that was horrible. Travis yeah, yeah, film. terrible. All she did was literally go to a black neighborhood and people were like, I can't believe you did that. And it's <laughs> wow. like, you know, people live there. Oh, yeah. Well, because he was emaciated, Oppenheimer's body was a great embarrassment to himself. Yeah. He was therefore rarely naked. He was which, never nude. Yeah, which surprises <laughs> me because the Oppenheimer movie just got an R rating for nudity and sexuality. They're throwing tits in there. I guess well, so. Because he has because yeah. what we're going to learn about J. Robert Oppenheimer is like, yeah, he's a nerd, but later on, he's going to flourish as a man who fucks mm -hmm. and fucks pretty regularly. So he had his, yeah. you know, he have he had several affairs, and I'm pretty certain that's where the sucky sucky comes from in you Oppenheimer. So? Yeah, yeah oh. I want a really graphic sex scene with Nothing J. Robert Oppenheimer. Mm. Honest, all I want 
is I want a, a loop of Killian Murphy's <laughs> orgasm face. Just him. Yeah. You know he's so scary. He's so scary. Oh, yeah. I can't yeah. imagine him hovering over me. And some, I'm sorry. I, it just scares me. Yeah. He's, mm. he's, he's, his icy blue eyes just going, yeah. I'm going to come. Like, his weird right. like, little, oh, very yeah. scary. little Irish accent. I think Oppenheimer smells like the inside of a Ziploc bag after you take a bologna sandwich out of it. <laughs> you know, you will get it. Yeah, he was fairly mm. dapper. Well, just like Leslie Groves, Oppenheimer was an absolute genius. But as opposed to Groves, Oppenheimer was generally well-liked just so long as he liked you. Yeah, I was okay. watching the trials of Robert uh, J. J. Robert Oppenheimer and the way they all talk about it, being like, yeah, he was like smart or whatever, but he was kind of mean. Like, you see all these like scientists being like, you're just jealous. Yeah, just jealous. Well, if he didn't like you, if you were talking, he would start doing this weird German accent, like this affected accent. And he would go like, yeah, 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 until you shut up. And then when you shut up, right. he would destroy your argument before you even made it because he knew exactly what you were going to say. Well, he's, he's right. He's well, correct. Well, that was the thing is that he often flexed. He said he had a hard time not berating people because yeah. he was so much smarter than everybody else, which you can you see him mm -hmm. blossom. Yeah. into administrator over the years. Yeah, I really understand this guy. I understand where he's coming from. No, I know. I Sometimes <laughs> I'm so awed by mm -hmm. Kissel's just sheer intellectual... The number game. The force. <laughs> he just says the word number game, and I know number that game. I don't know what he means, like, but wow. he seems to know what he knows. I know, I know what he means by the number game. You don't he, know what I mean. I think I know what you mean. I think you mean that if you tell people they're stupid often enough, you're going to be right, and you're going to be right sometimes. Broken clock is right six times six a day. Times <laughs> it's a literally day. what he's saying. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good work. <laughs> good work, boys. Now, Oppenheimer grew up apolitical, but around 1936, when it became impossible to ignore that horrible things were happening to Jewish people in Germany, Oppenheimer finally became interested in world events. Hmm. There was also a much more personal reason why he got into politics. Oppenheimer got horny for a communist. Yeah, buddy, it, it, it ain't hard. <laughs> oh it ain't hard because God. you know the best part about a communist? They always share. You really got him good there. You really got him good there. Uh, there is a lot of factors here. Like, this is an extremely, <laughs> this is one of those, like, extremely complicated subjects in history that everyone kind of tears apart in and out and again and again. Oppenheimer as a communist. How did he He's get into it? a communist. What did he move? <laughs> well, there's a lot. That's what I was saying. If we were writing a book about this subject, yes, we, if we were write, write. If we were writing American Prometheus, if we were writing American Prometheus. <laughs> we too would have a two hundred page sequence where we try to chart how the fact that Oppenheimer got really into the uh, Spanish Civil War and on the, the side that was anti Franco, and they a bunch of common he. He grew up with no friends because he was such an alien. Later on, he gets to college. He gets into mm. these sort of like what we now call hippie-ish movements where at the time which like closely linked to communist ideals and, and thought patterns. As opposed to now. But he literally became like super interested in it because he finally got friends. So on one level, you can mm. kind of see... Yes, obviously he cared about politics and he cared about people and he wanted to get involved and most humanitarian projects at the time were all on the left side versus the right side. But you could also probably say the last podcast version, because we're not writing American Prometheus, is the fact he was trying to fuck. And he was Rick finally amongst a bunch of cool 
cigarette smoking communist people talking about cool things in well, the I, scene. I believe that would be the human element. Yeah, would it not? absolutely. And through her, Oppenheimer started hanging out with communists. He didn't really accept or really even understand Marx or Engels. But well, he, he went through Das Kapital. That's what they're all yeah. saying. Well, the fact that he he was the only person in those rooms that read Das Kapital <laughs> because he was also interested in philosophy and religion, yeah. He which you comes up time and time again because of his mystical nature. But it's still, it was like communism light yeah. because he still kind of viewed like, oh, these well, are things that can help in America and help society. But I, uh, it was not really about what was going on in Russia at the time. Hate to break it to him. He's really going to do something anti-communist. Oh, well, <laughs> this is a, but then they yeah, immediately because, uh, put him uh, on trial right after the war. There's like oh, a whole thing. Oh, oh yeah. He's oh, yeah. De- they he destroy his up, whole life. Yeah, he gets caught up in McCarthyism pretty fucking hard. But back then, oh. in the 1930s, Oppenheimer just thought that commies were a good hang, yeah. which they are. They are. Just, you just got, well, you got to leave the well, party. sometimes it You got to leave the party when they actually start talking about communism, because that's when it, it just starts getting no fun. And I love, I love our communist listeners. We have a lot of them, but you do tend to lecture. <laughs> yes. Oh, which I do understand. There's a lot of reading to do. Yeah, that's- but capitalism, you just show up and you got your McDonald's. Like you, <laughs> as long as you show up every day yeah. as a manager of McDonald's, you're fine. Yeah. You know they're not bringing back the Irish milkshake. <laughs> you know the Irish milkshake, the Shamrock Shake, the Shamrock Shake. They haven't done it in years. I think they Isn't said it weird? was racist or something. No, no, it's, the Irish. Like, it's American to shit green. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> But I suppose Oppenheimer did hang out through the conversations because he eventually met and married a communist named Kitty. Kitty had been previously married to an American Communist Party official named Joe Dallet, who died volunteering Mm. in the Spanish Civil War. Apparently, he was a commander, but he wasn't a well-liked commander. And during a charge one day, he got up, he ran out there, men just didn't follow him. He got shot and killed. Yeah, follow right me, there. guys. Follow me. Oh, wait. Oh, oh shit. Guys. It reminds me of Jenny. <laughs> when she when she was dating that very mean. your Black Panther party. Yes, when she was marrying that very mean, mean man. She yeah. was dating him and he was abusive. Mm-hmm. And, but he was a protester too, though, so it was very complicated. No, yeah. it was not complicated. He was how, an asshole. How does that in any way relate to this? It doesn't. Uh, because Oppenheimer, because... <laughs> he was just say no, numbers game. Because, just say the words no, numbers game. He wait, you did say something that related to Jane. Eh? You uh, he just you got lost. <laughs> he just literally he, he heard something. He was just like uh, something like sounds like Forrest Gump. That is Forrest Gump. Like Forrest Gump. No, it's Go because back. you say brain brain. brain no, what I'm what's, saying what's Forrest is, Gump say? What does he say? Jenny? Jenny Jenny. Say All right, let me just say it in the show. They've been talking for minutes. They're what assholes. Saying right now, what I'm saying. They're assholes, like the man who was beating up Jenny, <laughs> who also took advantage of a special needs man. Hey, she was smart enough. I may not be a smart man, but no, I know no. what love is. No, no. I mean, that's not, that's he not mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. Well, when it came to Oppenheimer's allegiances, communism was really more of his wife's thing. Mm. For Oppenheimer, as it was for many Americans, everything changed when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And when he was given the opportunity to beat the Nazis to the bomb, he jumped. Oh, yes, because he also, because of his connection to the Communist Party, he actually l- met people 
that were in the first round of concentration camps at Dachau and yeah. got out. And so when he heard that, this was like, these are all the X factors that got him involved because he really was like a peacenik. Yeah. Like he did not want to be a part of this. He believed that politics were disgusting. He did not want to have anything to do with it. He just loved his science. But the Nazis were the single most unifying factor in modern time period to get everybody all together on one page to yep. build an atomic bomb. The Nazis got three X's on X Factor and they're out of here. Now, on paper, Oppenheimer was a terrible choice to head the Manhattan Project. Oh, good. He had no experience leading a large group. He had no experience engineering a project because he was a theoretical physicist. His <laughs> wife and his brother were communists. They didn't want him. No. And as opposed to so many other candidates, Oppenheimer didn't have, as I said, a Nobel Prize. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm a theoretical power lifter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in my mind, I yeah. lift a lot of weight. Yeah. 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 But could you write a, an extensive paper on powerlifting yeah. and teach a class on powerlifting yes. and have it actually be um, helpful? Yeah. Then for it to be helpful? Yeah. Please do. Pick the shit up. Up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Times three. Shut the fuck up. Sounds like a regular <laughs> Richard Feynman who can really boil <laughs> complex yeah, I mean, I used systems to, down. Yeah. I just do alleg- that's allegorical teaching. <laughs> just say numbers game. <laughs> that's all you got to say. Yeah. Yeah. Powerlifting is a numbers game. And it then is that's a it. numbers game. Yeah, because <laughs> weight is. is numbers. Isn't I know it? that. Pick it up. Up and down, up and down, up and down. <laughs> Times three. Shut the fuck up. Richard Feynman. <laughs> So when it came to why Groves chose Oppenheimer, he did it for the same reason he did everything. He had a gut feeling that Oppenheimer was the right man for the job. Say and it. he was fucking right. It was a FUPA feeling. It was <laughs> a FUPA feeling. I feel it down on my FUPA and it's going down on my toes. I He also was brought in, right? So one of Oppenheimer's old buddies was a guy who invented the cyclotron, who won a Nobel Prize for building the cyclotron. And so when they started these like very serious meetings, which was the, how do we figure this out? He's like, you got to meet my buddy Oppie, which is what they call him. This guy is a Cute. fucking literal cross the board genius. He's a half a communist, but he does his shit. And they're like, all right. So he brings him into a room, his first meeting. And he nails in that meeting what Werner Heisenberg bobbled the fucking the years before of he made a a fucking uh, formula right there to tell them how much uranium 235 theoretically would be needed to build an atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. And he was really close immediately. So they're like, oh, he might actually be kind of necessary for this. And then he kind of like build himself up. But he was campaigning to be in charge of it. Mm -hmm. And everybody else were like, well. He's a fucking communist. He's like he's going to be a spy, but they just don't know. Actually, it was way more of his students. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that something? Yeah, but you know, in the end, they're like, well, he's too fucking smart. Oh, he's so fucking smart. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, the weird thing was that Oppenheimer was about the only person in the Manhattan Project who could actually get along with Leslie Groves. Hmm. In turn, Groves had a high opinion of Oppenheimer, saying that he was the right man for the job of building an atomic weapon because Oppenheimer knew about everything except sports. That was his okay. main problem. He couldn't talk sports, which I understand. I'm trying to bridge the gap to, to straight men. I don't know what the sport was. <laughs> it just baseball, and, baseball? Uh, and candlestick bowling? Yeah, yeah. Candle uh, bowling? It's hard to talk to straight men. So what are you saying? Only you straight men like, only straight men like sports? That's not true. That's all. But the others... The others, no, when no. you meet him out there. You're you just talking to, about men. You said the same, like, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, he was bad at free throws. I've learned to say he stuff was. like that. And mm-hmm. then they go like, uh, you know, and they'll say a bunch of stuff. And I go, right. ah, yeah, the goat. 
<laughs> the goat indeed. Yeah. Crossovers, man. Huh. They, I, these guys, huh, they don't even allow to dribble anymore. Wow, just like Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah. Now, before the enormous infrastructure needed to make an atomic weapon was built, Groves and the people holding the purse needed to see that such a weapon was even possible. Hmm. So, Enrico Fermi, Hey-o. he headed up a project that aimed to create their first nuclear reaction, and he did it on the squash courts underneath the bleachers at the University of Chicago. Okay, wow. let, 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 let me explain. Let me explain. <laughs> imagine, imagine the nuclear weapon mm-hmm. like a spaghetti. <laughs> and yeah. you, it, you got it. It's a spaghetti. You got a noodle, right? Oh, you got a noodle. <laughs> oh, you gotta put it in the pasta water. Right? Yeah. Oh, and that stuff sauce. And then also, I need a bit of Are you French? French? They're going to put some etouffee in there? Now you're French. Now you're really French. That's uh, great. me, call me when it's boom boom time. <laughs> wow, like spaghetti indeed. I no. can talk about many subjects. I know you can. Just like Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you'll remember, Physicist Walter Bertha of Germany's Uranium Club, he believed that graphite couldn't be used to produce nuclear reactions. Mm. So he had therefore moved on to the far more expensive route of using heavy water. The Americans, however, had known that graphite was the better option. So they got to work on what was called a pile. Oh, yeah, yeah, buddy. That's where I come in. (laughs) (laughs) I think, honestly, that would be Kissel's one true contribution to the Manhattan Project. A pile. We need to, like, <laughs> make it round. What kind of pile? Big. You want a big pile? Uh, I can get you a big pile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. It's a numbers game. <laughs> it's a number pile. Yeah, that's a number pile. We're using 771,000 pounds of graphite bricks. The scientists spent 17 days building an egg-shaped mound 25 feet wide and two stories tall right there on the squash court. Damn, that's huge. Adorably, Enrico Fermi, he made calculations with instruments that he'd named after Winnie the Pooh characters, <laughs> like Why? Piglet and Roo and Heffalump. It's going to lead to the destruction of all humanity. It's no. me, a Fermi. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he'd been reading Winnie the Pooh books to teach him English because he didn't oh, know that's English. That's because he's a sociopath. <laughs> and Christopher Robin, he imagined all the different names. Yes, right? Christopher Robin was abused. Because they say, yes, Christopher Robin, he way molested. He we don't molested, know about that. He make up the creatures to talk to because in his mind, he said, from the abuse, <laughs> Yes, indeed. <laughs> now, within these graphite cubes were uranium slugs dispersed throughout, like... <laughs> okay. Is it the abuse, No, no, yeah. no. Yes. Christopher Robin. If anything, he's guilty of so many horrible things. That's why he lives in the woods. You know, they actually do have that theory that he buries the bodies in the woods and then he pretends like Winnie the Pooh is around there and Piglet's around there. He's a serial killer, Christopher Robin. It's a numbers Robbins. game. It yeah. is indeed. <laughs> well, uranium slugs were dispersed throughout these graphite cubes like so many nuclear raisins in graphite loafs. Ooh. People say we can't teach. <laughs> Look at that. I like that. I took that analogy. I stole that. That was from the making of the atomic bomb. Oh, it's really the, good. The though. author used that. Yeah. Nuclear raisins and graphite loaves. Can we change it to chocolate chips? Yeah. Great. Now it's ours. 
Fantastic. Yes. Each little bit contributed to the main goal, which was to create a nuclear chain reaction on a small scale. Mm -hmm. If they could do that, then they could move forward with the work of making a weapon that could produce a much larger nuclear chain reaction on command that would release enough energy to destroy a city, i.e. an atomic bomb. Well, because that's what uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer discovered early on. That's what he said. He's like, as soon as the math came out, what Mm. everybody said was like, oh, so basically you follow this nuclear fission concept and eventually yada, 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 it's going to explode. You just let it go and let it explode. But this also shows the the kind of scattershot way they started to build the weapon because Leslie Groves would kind of set up all these areas all around the country to try, kind of all in competition against each other to come up with stuff first. But uh, th- just the, it's weird because it's like playful. They're just dumping a bunch of graphite and nuclear bits in a thing and kind of seeing what the fuck happens with it when it really could have killed all of them. Yeah, it really could have. (laughs) Well, this is the different, this is when theoretical starts to move into practical science. But that's what Oppenheimer also understood early on. He said originally, like, no, we. this is all going to be different. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like Werner Heisenberg. He literally was like, he had to figure out like, oh no, this has to work in real life. Yeah. Like this isn't a classroom lesson. Yeah, and this is how it moves. Absolutely. You want to make sure the, the mathematical formula is correct. Weird science, that movie, what if instead of that beautiful woman, it was China from the WWE they created and she ripped their dicks off. I mean, you know, it's another movie, but I like it. It's yeah. kind of fun. She's dead. I mean, <laughs> but the idea of it. R.I.P. I could be carried around by a big woman. I know. Yeah. Also, the Iron Sheik just died. Wow. I know. He made it a long time. Speaking of spike. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Speaking of spike. Now, the danger here was that once the chain reaction in the pile started, it had a chance of going critical. And since they were doing this in the middle of Chicago, that yeah. was indeed a grave concern. I would ask my city council <laughs> to just be like, did we sanction this? Uh, I don't think they were informed. Mm-mm. Oh my. So as a precaution, they had a dude standing by with an ax whose only job, <laughs> his only job was to chop a rope that would lower a huge rod of cadmium into the heart of the pile. And this would apparently stop the nuclear chain reaction. That's all. That was it. That Man. was, well, no, that was they the safety did, no, net? no, they had backup guys. They had two dudes with buckets of water. Oh and, my God. But the water, That's not going to work. <laughs> but the water, Water was laced with cadmium, so they could throw it on the pile, and that would stop the uh, the cadmium. It would stop the nuclear chain reaction. They really should have given the guy a sickle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that yeah, 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 a very big axe. Yeah, but in the end, the experiment went exactly as planned. Oof. At three fifty three p.m. on December second, nineteen forty two, just a few days before the first anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, the so called Chicago Pile. <laughs> <laughs> became, became the world's first working nuclear reactor. Yeah, it just sounds course, like something Guy Fieri eats and throws up. <laughs> oh, he doesn't throw. Also, Guy Fieri, by the way, put some respect on him. I never will. Um, He ate raw eggs on an episode. Yeah, he wow. did. Yes, he's getting okay. kids. You don't know, but he doesn't like eggs. Yes, I know that. Eggs. I know that because you've mentioned it yes, hundreds of indeed. times. Also, that the, the guy sh- Fieri doesn't like eggs. The Chicago pile. <laughs> the Chicago pile. That's exactly who you want running the football on the goal line. <laughs> His name was Refrigerator, though. He already had a nickname. Well, I know, but this is the 40s. Refrigerator (laughs) Perry is just a little, he's just a little, he's just a little cooler. Think about what Shaquille O'Neal would have done if he could have figured out how to change that free throw ratio. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) Now, some stories paint this as a moment of elation. It's a moment when the boys broke out a bottle of Chiani. We got to celebrate this. It's one of the most impressive scientific achievements in history. Now, there was indeed a bottle of Chianti involved. But the scientists sat and drank it from paper cups in silence. And afterward, 
Physicist Leo Sillard solemnly shook Enrico Fermi's hand and said that December 2nd, 1942 would, quote, go down as a black day in the history of mankind. I have to say, this is a certainly a most despising meatball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this spaghetti looks like it's got some squid egg in it. But now that scientists under American authority had achieved the sort of self-sustaining chain reaction needed to produce an atomic weapon, Leslie Groves was given a massive, un- almost unlimited budget to get the Manhattan Project off the ground. See, as Fermi and Sillard put it, if a bunch of Americans could build a reactor on a fucking squash court in Chicago, then surely geniuses like Otto Hahn and Werner Heisenberg were miles ahead. Mm-mm. Therefore, the Manhattan Project was given an immediate sense of grave urgency. Mm. But in reality, Heisenberg had stalled completely, although by appearances, he seemed right on track. Oh, yeah, he did it on purpose, so he wasn't getting sent to a goddamn concentration camp. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine when the when they walk in and you're just like, no, oh, we're heavy, we're busy. Oh, we're, it's we're busy. We're water is the heaviest shit. I, I, oh, I pulled up my shoulder. That's my that's, that's my problem. I, it hurts my shoulder yeah. lifting the heavy water. You better come up with frozen pizza or something. You better get something created. See, by June of 1942, six months before the Chicago pile succeeded, Heisenberg was running the most sophisticated nuclear fission experiments in the world. He'd already built three piles of his own. Oh, yeah. Wow. Now, Heisenberg did not achieve a full nuclear chain reaction with any of these, but each machine was a vast improvement on the last. Mm. And based on his progress, one scientist in Chicago estimated that Hitler could have an atomic bomb by the end of 1942. I think we all know Hitler was obsessed with different kinds of piles. Oh, <laughs> Mostly yeah. ones right on his chest. Yep. You like that poo-poo? Mm, that's what they say. That's what weird they say. Guy. <laughs> I I weird guy. I heard that. I heard that. Weird guy. Well, to put that timeline into perspective, if those projections were mm-hmm. correct, Hitler having a bomb by the end of 42, he would have had an atomic bomb before the Allies even started gaining footholds in Europe Mm. with the invasion of Italy. He would have had it a full year and a half before D-Day. Have you guys read the biography on Hitler, weird guy? (laughs) Yeah, it is crazy. It's kind of funny. They actually yada, 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 like 10 years. Uh Oh, yeah. It's mostly about his painting career. It's a (laughs) four-page book. It's crazy. Well, in other words, if Hitler had the bomb by the end of 1942, the Allies would be far beyond Yes, and wow, that would be crazy. Now, true question, though, it being that Europe, quite tiny, can you really use the bomb on your European enemies without getting fallout in your own goddamn backyard? They would have learned. Well, what did we know? What do we know about the Nazis? They didn't really even care about themselves. We know that one of the end plans that they were going to do was gas bomb everybody. They mm-hmm. did. They that was already in a contingency past the atomic bomb. They were ready to kill everybody. No, 1942. Mm-hmm. That atomic bomb that's going to London. They've already taken Paris. They don't need to bomb Paris. Right, right. That shit's going to Moscow. That's yep. going oh, yeah, Moscow, to Moscow, New York. Yeah, that's going to New York. It's Washington, going to Washington D.C. DC. Like, there's plenty of places far beyond Germany well, itself, even far beyond the fucking lead, like. Because that's the thing. They're taking the Liebens round, but if it gets a little irradiated for a couple of years, eh, fuck it. It's a thousand year Reich. They that's, can wait it out. That is why we have so much room. <laughs> yeah. One thing we learned about New York is they handle it all very well. Oh, yeah. 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 But thankfully, Heisenberg's lab was actually a deadly mess. Again, 
anyone with a bright mind and even a semblance of a moral compass had fled Germany years prior. So all Heisenberg was left with were a bunch of dumb, dumb Nazis. Yeah, shit, <laughs> shit, fuck company. Oh, yeah. no. In the first of many catastrophic lab accidents, an assistant was preparing an experiment and fumbled the powdered yeah, uranium. Uh, <laughs> uh, that produced a 12-foot-tall explosion of flames cool. that badly burned the assistant. <laughs> my labia! Oh, my labia! <laughs> The assistant's ordeal, however, was not over. Not too long after, hydrogen leaked into an apparatus containing uranium and heavy water. And who else did they send to deal with it but the dumb fuck assistant? I can feel maybe we should try Gregory. <laughs> I feel that yeah. Gregory could go in because seemingly half of my mouth <laughs> is scarred shut due to the meltings of the fires and yeah, the burning. Yep, yep. Let's see if he dies. Again, the powdered uranium exploded. <laughs> this guy is having a bad day. He was covered in hot flames. They said hot flames were poured upon him. <laughs> oh. I got to get out of this internship. Yes, indeed, my friend. And wanting to help, the other Nazi assistants brought buckets of water to put out the fire. <laughs> but they were also they were also dumb dumb Nazis because burning uranium has a habit of reacting explosively with water. Oh, That's you're making great. it worse. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> and so when they tried putting out the fire like it's a fucking Three Stooges sketch, yeah. the apparatus exploded like oh. a grenade and threw hundreds of metal rivets. Yeah. This time, the flames were 20 feet high, <laughs> and those in the lab who weren't killed by the explosion were seen running in terror. The firefighters who showed up couldn't put a dent in the hmm. blaze, so they had to let it just run its course for two days, yeah. like a fucking tire fire. So tell me, Verna, how was the experiment this weekend? Bad. <laughs> yeah, you're just gonna want to let it breathe itself out there. It's let no, it we are in a waiting period where yeah. the flames are doing their work, so then we That's can good. do our work. Well, technically, it was better because the first flame's 12 feet, second flame's 20 feet. I mean, Maybe next thing you know, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Absolutely, you're doing a great job, Phil. I wish the experiments would stop. I know you're burned. Every time I see you, a different part of your body is burned. There has to be another assistant <laughs> oh, that I can do this. Oh, buddy, your nose is falling off. I know. You, I, don't, your think nose I is... don't. You don't think I don't feel it? You don't think I don't feel it? <laughs> no, right? Man, we're bad scientists, huh? But perhaps what was interfering with Heisenberg's work the most were the demands and trappings of Nazi society itself. Mm. Like it is with any government built around a cult of personality, fealty had to be paid to Hitler and the state constantly. So Heisenberg found himself required to attend endless state functions and lectures to talk about how there were totally smart people left in Nazi Germany. <laughs> absolutely tremendous people, nothing but the best teams. Everybody's doing, everybody's pulling together. Tremendous people, Great. tremendous work. Absolutely. Tremendous work all around. Me, oh, why am I not busy working? Because they yeah. let me just, it's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. Burnt up all of your staff and crew and, mm -hmm. you know, half of yourself. As a result, Heisenberg's work on nuclear fission was completely stalled by 1943. Mm. At the same wow, what a total epic fucking failure. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was very happy, though, because then it got him out of the spotlight yeah. with, his, with his bosses. Yeah. yeah. 1943, it's done. America keeps believing 
for two years yep. that he is miles ahead of him. That's the power of playing like you're behind, even if you're in the lead. Mm-hmm. It's what you, I love your term. We always talk about it. Under promise, over deliver. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, though, another Axis power had shown interest in atomic weaponry. And these people just happened to be the very same on whom the first nuclear weapon would be used. Oh. What do you mean, these people? Oh, Nazis? Yes. No, I mean Japanese. Oh, no! Yes. By 1942... That was bad then! It is, yes. By 1942, Japan had also been making progress on atomic research. See, they knew that America was very likely working on an atomic bomb themselves. Hmm. Because as Henry said, once the math was out there, everyone knew that it was possible. And the Japan... And the Jap- I, mean, I, I didn't. Because <laughs> you imagine if like, we like, saw that everyone. Oh, yeah, the whole yeah. world was just us. It was yeah, just like, you know, again. Yeah, Bob Hope didn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> if you said to the other comedians at that time, yeah, they didn't yeah. know idea. No. Yeah. Vaudeville was completely unaware Absolutely. of nuclear fission. <laughs> and so Japan, they projected that they themselves would need at least 10 years to produce an atomic weapon. Wow. But this didn't really bother them because Japanese scientists believe that neither the United States nor even their allies, Germany, They didn't believe that any of them had the resources or the industrial capacity to produce a nuclear bomb before the war ended. Now, this is another one of those massively debated history, questions of history of why, because we talked a little bit before the show, where like, why did they think that? And we we like, you know, like, how do the Japanese like, why do they not think that we wouldn't be able to do this thing? And it just seems like it's because they were very kind of closed off to our culture. Well, Japan just massively massively underestimated America. Yeah. Like they didn't, like they thought seriously with Pearl mm-hmm. Harbor, they thought like basically like there was an oil embargo. I mean, it's very, there's a lot of history yeah. like, but I can, put into a sentence. I, yeah, I can boil it down. Like there was an oil embargo on Japan that was you know, the United States was a part of because Japan has very few resources of its own. Mm. So the Japanese figured all we got to do, we can bomb Pearl Harbor, we'll take out America's entire Navy all at once and we can start to get oil again. But what well, There they, you go. It's a numbers game. One, two, three. <laughs> See, look at that. <laughs> yeah. But what they didn't figure on was the fact that America could just build another Navy and we could build another one and we can build another one. And that's the other thing about it is that they did not realize that if you bop America on the nose, we will not stop until you are all dead. Yep. That is why um, that's why it's important. See, that's the birth of the American war machine that you all in other countries get to experience all the time. So thank (laughs) you. Thank Thank you. Thank you. you. You're welcome for that nuclear. You're welcome for that nuclear weapon on your country's soil. How is that new tech going over in Ukraine, by the way, and I'd love to see it in action. Um, that's the power of the pent-up Pentecostal. <laughs> yes. There is so much hidden rage. Mm-hmm. And this, this is still the time of America and idealism, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So they're just like, you don't fuck Oh, no, this is actually before the idealism part. Technically, you mean we're American still exceptionalism? exceptionalism? Oh, no, this is full. We are isolationist at this point yeah. in history. Okay. We are, yeah, World War so I. They, they woke up a sleeping giant. They did? That's what, that's it. That was, those were Hitler's exact words. <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, in, uh, in, in chapter seven, a weird guy, uh, he actually does, he, he says, if you mix watercolors with your tangible solubles, uh, you can actually make it's a really a, good river. Kissel's comedy is really just a numbers game. <laughs> and you just never game. know what comes up. Yeah. That's exactly what Rush Limbaugh said. I think about that from the birdcage. <laughs> well, Japan, because they didn't yeah. believe that America had the resources to build an atomic bomb, they diverted 
all of the resources they may have spent on atomic research to radar technology. Because that's the other thing, too, is that, again, mm, yeah. Japan's problem is always resources. Mm. They didn't really have access to a whole lot of uranium, so atomic research was kind of a waste of their time. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like a good build. And honestly, they're so svelte over there. Most of their water is very thin. Yeah. There you go. You really nailed that one. (laughs) What do you want from me? (laughs) Uh, No, radar was actually a great use. Oh, no. Radar was a great use of their resources. Absolutely. Yeah, they really should have put more into, um, what do you call it? Codes. Because once Uh. America broke the codes... It was all over I've for done, Japan. I've done left, right, left, right, left, right. I'm a virgin. Uh, and then you have all those lives in Contra. A-B-A-C-A-B-B. You know that. I actually never knew that. <laughs> What's happening, guys? Contra. Up, down, Am left, I? Up, up, Am I down, the only down, person who's left, not the right, nerd? Left, right. Is this me? A, is this a nerd alert on start. YouTube? This is a nerd alert on YouTube. Up, wow. up, down, down. Left, right, left, right. A, B, start. 30 lives. Contra. That's fine. Unbelievable. Larry Bird really knew how to talk some shit. Yeah, he did. He actually did. <laughs> and so, as it stood, America believed itself to be in an existential race towards atomic weaponry with its two greatest enemies. Mm. When in In fact, it was only racing against itself. Wow, that's crazy psychological. Mm -hmm. But when it came to competition, General Leslie Groves was determined to win hard and win fast. (laughs) Now, Groves researched the best ways to build the massive industrial complexes needed to produce fissionable materials and to develop a working mechanism to harness the power of the atom. Nerd. Whoa, this is the only time being a nerd is cool. Oh, yeah. But Groves' biggest problem at the outset was deciding which research path to take towards a nuclear weapon. At this point, remember, there's like multiple ways. There's the graphite method. There's the heavy water method. There's all kinds of ways that we could get to the bomb. But the thing is, you got to figure out, but it has to, how do you make a thing that it goes explode? Yeah. But this problem was solved in a way that only America could have done it due to our enormous resources and the fact that the war wasn't anywhere near America. As one man put it, the atomic bomb couldn't be built unless we turned all of America into a factory. And in the end, General Groves did just that by saying, fuck it, let's do them all. Yeah, and so they just threw every single thing that they had at the project. It became, that's what they were all very interested about. It's like, it was normally they had to deal with low budget, no parameters. But eventually you get to a point where it's all parameters and they had the exact whatever amount of money anything, anything. That, but also it puts a lot of pressure on people yeah. when you have to do thing like you know whatever you want do it yep yeah and it reminds me of what difficult. happened with mcdonald's and the milkshake machine yeah, the they Shamrock. were attempting to get more milkshakes sold quicker but you oh. know what they did then what they got a multi whipper mm, yeah <laughs> and they were able to whip three milkshakes at once richard Feynman. <laughs> so there you go <laughs> diversify mm-hmm. is this a ray Kroc thing no, I fucking hate Ray Kroc. <laughs> he was true American. No, he was an asshole. Yeah, he I'm was. American. True yeah. American. Now, although the Manhattan Project only employed about a dozen people when it was just some office downtown in 1942, there were 150,000 people working towards an atomic weapon Ooh. by the time we set off the first bomb during the Trinity test in July of 1945. That's half the population of Cincinnati. You know, it would be interesting to see their faces when the bombs do go off. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, they were they were like, hey, um, I, I'm really happy it wasn't half the actual population of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if that's just what they did? Yeah. They went to Cincinnati and they're like, we're going to break you up in ones and twos. <laughs> the ones you're working on the atomic bomb. Uh-oh. Let's go. I think that's how that chili came about. <laughs> but when it came to which scientists were going to be invited to the big show out in the desert, 
Robert Oppenheimer traveled across the country to personally recruit the people he wanted. A sort of atomic dream team. Yeah, Magic Johnson. <laughs> there you go. Not Isaiah LeBron Thomas. James, yeah. Bugs Bunny. Well, if you, if you get Isaiah, you don't get MJ. That's, That's how we know. That's the problem. This would have been such a great time to just trip fucking balls and be a spectator. <laughs> if we could just like have our Hunter S. Thompson moment, mm -hmm. just watching this shit live. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. God. Oh my God, what a nightmarish. But this begins but, the. I don't know, interesting. Yeah. This begins the walk together. <laughs> come on, come on, let's work together. Isn't that nice? Yeah. In the movie, this is this is this part is going to be like a montage with like a, a music, like a lot of Oppenheimer on trains yeah, and driving like, back and forth in a big jalopy and like picking up like Niels Bohr, who's like doing the weird. He's like, "Fancy seeing you here, fella. You want to come along with me to my Manhattan trip?" And he's just like, "You got it, there, fella. You know, you picked him up." Well, I'm just happy they're going to make it really cute. Yeah, yeah. Well, initially, Oppenheimer estimated that he would need 50 scientists and 50 technicians to head up four divisions. Theoretical, experimental, mm -hmm. chemical, and ordnance. Ordnance. What the fuck is ordnance? It's how to get it due. It's the bomb itself. Oh. Uh. Yeah. But Grove said, fuck you, Oppenheimer. Whoa. That's not enough. Triple the number you think you need and go get them. Wow. Yeah, any scientist that's not tied down. Yeah. Well, you have to take them out of my basement then. <laughs> <laughs> now, most scientists were convinced to come work on the Manhattan Project off the assumption that the Nazis were getting close to the bomb. Right. But when a scientist hesitated in getting involved in war at all, oh, yeah. Uh, Oppenheimer made sure to share the utopian vision that the atomic bomb would actually end war forever. Do you imagine how incredible yeah. it would be if we could teach bombs how to dance? <laughs> It'd be nice. <laughs> You know, again, it's a little bit correct. Yeah. I wish a bomb could kiss. Yeah. And then they'll yeah. teach everybody how to love instead of die. I do love that. I do love now. Also, it's Pride Month, so they are more open-minded this month when they explode. Yeah, they are. <laughs> and there hasn't been a war since 1945. No. Not a nuclear one. No, 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 <laughs> no. There have been skirmishes one. and conflicts. Ah, police actions. Yes. I don't want to fall in one of those Viet Cong traps, man. I love that. I've been touring that museum. It's been an eight-hour tour. I've been working through it. On YouTube. God, it's nice. Fucking crazy, bro. What? You don't want to fall in them traps, bro. Yeah. I don't want to go in no tiger cage. No. They got go the tiger on virtual museum tours at yeah, all? Yeah, because the, I want to go visit I'm, it because it's absolutely incredible. I guess it's true. I guess yeah. it's true. absolutely incredible. Well, where is it? It's in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's the Vietnam. It's the That's Vietnamese. Crazy. It's the Viet Cong. What See, they I did actually, for war. And they, it was, man, they... You can do a lot with a nail in the wood. Oh, you really can. You really can. I follow a lot of Vietnamese like street food vendors. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's good, too. That's real nice. Live from your grave. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with Horse picks. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be 
pinging a lot of these custom agents accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse picks over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hi, did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. That's one of my favorite things about it. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Now, personally, I'm in the middle of re-landscaping my yard. I like to do it myself because I called up a landscaper to see how much it costs and it was absolutely insane. Plus, I love dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt and I love planting things myself. And Fast Growing Trees has given me some wonderful plants that I can use. Like I got this uh, Texas sage, it's purple. I've dug up a whole bunch of horrible bushes and shrubs up in front of my window and in front of my house and put some purple Texas sage up there and it's going to thrive and it's going to look real good. And I didn't even have to go to a nursery to buy it. It came to my house. Now, this spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEFT at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code LEFT at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code LEFT. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Now, while Oppenheimer was recruiting scientists, Leslie Groves was building the infrastructure. In the end, Groves oversaw the construction of three secret towns built almost from scratch, and he did it all in two months. Jeez. Now, by design, these towns needed to be isolated, and that went double for the town that was going to be responsible for actually constructing and testing the bomb itself. Well, you know, what's interesting is that's against all of the actual, uh, that's against the sense of the time. Because they were all like, no, 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 we need these next to big cities because that's how you get all the shit that we need for the experimentations. Not a good but then idea. They're all like, oh, so we're going to test this atomic bomb right outside of Chicago? Yeah. You know, yeah. like that's literally and like- paints uh, a huge target on Chicago? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, for the test site, they needed a place with good transportation in order to get all that shit there. They mm-hmm. needed a local labor force and they needed a moderate climate for year-round construction and outdoor experimentation. Most importantly, though, Groves made sure, to your point, Henry, that it was an isolated site so nearby communities wouldn't be adversely affected by any unforeseen results. I mean, try explaining nuclear sickness, like radiation sickness to a fucking congressman in 1942. No, how do you do it? What do you mean? They're being pussies? Their cells are being pussies. I mean, Jim Inhofe just brought a snowball into the White House, into the uh, the Capitol. The chamber? There, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A couple uh, of years back. No, no, no. You can't, we can't compare anything now because they used to have like thoughts and shame and pride I back don't know. in the day. And dignity. Yeah, Maybe. dignity, yeah. Some Maybe. did. Not Some all. Did. I wouldn't say Strom Thurmond had a lot of dignity. No, no, no. no you're right. All right. Yeah. 
Well, therefore, Groves chose the site of a former boys' prep school in Jemez, New Mexico, oh. about 40 miles northwest of Santa Fe, and he rechristened it as Los Alamos. Well, that was also J. Robert Oppenheimer's old stomping grounds. Well, he loved the desert. He loved the desert, and he loved riding. He loved going out and be like, you wouldn't believe just how groovy a cactus can be. I believe <laughs> yeah, my that. friends. Yeah. But he, he loved this area of the world, and he knew the Los Alamos area. Mm-hmm. And he was like, because that was one of his, I mean, again, it's a, the, the things you learn about him, where one of his big issues when they first found a spot, where he's like, you can barely see the beautiful mountain ranges from here. Mm-hmm. And how will well, we be inspired? Yeah, but they were like, but eventually the fight, there was like one of the pluses of the new area when they got to Los Alamos where he's like, and you can see the beautiful colors. Isn't Green. That? Yeah. Red. Nice. Yeah. It can orange. be a, it can be a beautiful great. place. Sure. Why not? Blue is the sky. Mm-hmm. Clouds are white. <laughs> yep. Yes, <laughs> indeed. The land of enchantment. Some cactuses actually like to lie down. It's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. That's what comedy is. It really is. That's true. I saw someone adopt a cactus. Huh. It's on Instagram. Hmm. Wow. It has to be real. <laughs> it is. Some cactuses actually do like to lay down. Well, just, Los Alamos. We're just going to move on. Mm-hmm. Well, Los Alamos. Well, Los Alamos was only one of the Manhattan Project's three so-called secret cities. And even those three, those weren't the only Manhattan Project sites. Besides Los Alamos, codenamed Site Y. The other Why? Because we got it. <laughs> I guess so. No. Why? Like the letter. Not why. It's not like Cafe Y. I didn't say it. Why are you looking at me? I figured it was fucking Y. I was Joker. I was doing a homonym-based joke. Yes. Right. Well, the other two main sites were in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Hanford, Washington, while smaller sites were located in 13 other cities across the United States, also had a couple in Canada and one in England. Now, Mm. Los Alamos alone would start with a population of about 3,500 in a town that already included a school, a laundry, libraries, a movie theater, bachelor apartments, barbers. Because they didn't want them all be, they separated the women, men and the women, except for the ones that were married. Yeah. Mm. They had barbers, two restaurants, a vet, and a bar. Wow. And this was all there when they showed up. Although they did also vastly underestimate the resources they would need. It was okay. not fun to live there no. for the first few months. They were living pretty fucking rough. Yeah. But it was interesting because then Robert Oppenheimer promised all of them, I will definitely make a restaurant that you can all go on dates with your wives to. Mm. And it's yes. true. where he, They literally made a cafe for the single men. And then they made a take your other scientist wife on a date place within Los Alamos. I also watched a recent history on TGI Fridays. The first one to do the horseshoe around the bar so people would mingle as they go to their seats. Oh, interesting. Mm, Wow. Well, by the time the bomb dropped. It is interesting. It It is is interesting. Well, by the time the bomb dropped in 1945, Los Alamos, the population would have doubled to 8,000. Okay. And a couple years later, it was up to 10,000 because work did not stop on atomic research after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and these people were just asexually multiplying, right? Because of all the chemicals that <laughs> oh, were in the yeah, air. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, 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 were actually, like, they were like gremlins. Yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. massive yeah. issue because they yeah. people were having babies. People were fucking and having babies and they were, and it was like at some point, Leslie Groves had to cut it all off. He's like, there's too many fucking babies being born in the middle of my atomic bomb project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he has a point. <laughs> yes. But the thing about the atomic bomb is that even without it, the Allies were already inflicting airborne destruction in Germany on a never-before-seen scale 
with bombing campaigns like the evocatively titled Operation Gomorrah. Not good. Oh, my goodness. Because we know that story. Yeah. Turn it to salt. Oh, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. With Gomorrah, the Allies used incendiary bombs to reduce the industrial capacity of Germany's war machine, and they started with the city of Hamburg. See, as opposed to simple explosives, Mm -hmm. most incendiary bombs in World War II contained small sticks of white phosphorus called bomblets. Cute! They scattered themselves around the target at a high altitude in advance of the actual explosive bomb. Whoa, that's fun and cute. They're little bombs, little helpers. Yeah. It is the home of the Hamburger. (laughs) And once the big bomb... I think it was in St. Louis. No, it's Hamburg, Germany. That's where the Hamburger was created. Interesting. Well, once the big... (laughs) I think it was actually up in like Rhode Island. Once the big bomb hit the ground, it would ignite these bomblets, starting fires so hot that they could melt metal and rock. Metal? Cool. Wow, that's crazy. Those fires would then spread indiscriminately to the rest of the city, where they would meet fires caused by other incendiary bombs. Oh, it's like you're meeting all of their friends. It's a hell of a day to be a fire. (laughs) This would create firestorms so hot that the pilots dropping the bombs from thousands of feet above... They were nearly suffocated by the heat. Wow. But that was, of course, nothing compared to what was happening on the ground. Yeah, there was like a, it was more like a fire festival. <laughs> Weird guy. Now, the firebombing of Dresden is the most infamous of these operations due to the Kurt Vonnegut novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. Oh, yeah. But the nighttime British firebombing of Hamburg in 1943, which killed 45,000 thousand civilians, mostly old people, women, and children. That was just as bad. Why were you letting me talk about how cute all the bomblets were? <laughs> and how mean, that was a cute thing to do. And then about the meat cute with the flames and stuff. Why they didn't you say it? Cute. Why didn't you stop it then? They mm-hmm. did name it something like cute. Anytime you have a sickle at the end of any, or ickle, it's like, Let. it's kind of cute. It's a bomblet. It's a bomblet. Yeah. It's fun. Mm. You just let me do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 45,000 innocent people. And it's about died. to get a lot worse. According to accounts in the making of the atomic bomb by Richard Rhodes, people would be cooked in pools of their own melted fat as the heat turned sealed shelters into kilns, and those left on the streets became small, blackened bundles. There was one dude who was like, I kind of like the way I taste. I kind of like the way I taste. This is not cute at all. This is the opposite of the He's a puddle of, of his own fat. And he's eating his own fat. Yeah. I kind of like the way Do we have any uh, pretzels? Oh, no. You can't get a scoop of my liquid. You get high as hell. <laughs> well, if you weren't burned or melted, hmm. you'd yeah. die either from the hurricane force winds the firestorms created okay. or you'd asphyxiate because the fire would suck up all the oxygen from the air. Sometimes mm. the firestorms would create atmospheric conditions that would cause brains to burst out of people's temples <laughs> oh, or, no. or cause their innards to burst out from underneath their ribs. Oh, their entire like rib cage. Yes, you never want your last India. word. You never want your last words to be like, well, I needed that. <laughs> I it's oh. not cute. You know, no, like, it's not, but you did I, make it cute. Why did we need the other bombs. It sounds like these bombs are doing a really good job of being like Ghosted. naughty. Yeah, being better. bad. Yeah, Ghosted being better. real bad. Yeah, and well, and of course, all of this would pale in comparison to the firebombing of Tokyo mm. uh, that would happen, I think, a year or two later. Mm. But while this does prove that the firebombing of cities, whether it was Hamburg, London, or Tokyo, it proves they were always horrific. Oh, yeah. It also showed that the men in charge during World War II had no issue bombing civilians. No. After right. all, when it was all said and done, 38 
million civilians died during World War II, which was incredibly two and a half times the number of military personnel killed. And 38 million is a conservative estimate. You could see fucking what? You know, really? I mean, obviously, you know, to fight for the the Nazis, but like. But no, stupid but, human history. But why did the Nazis beings? do it in the first place? Right. You know, yeah. like why did the Japanese do it in it's the first fucking place? Point. It's very, uh, it, it's it's humbling because you think about like how much destruction was caused in such a short period of time, and what they had to kind of scramble to do, and how the Manhattan. Right? It's so crazy. This whole story is just this time period. Yeah. They came out of this all fucked up. Like now we kind of know about like yeah. trauma and PTSD. You think about it, these guys were fighting in the just war, like the quote unquote good war. Yeah. And Greatest they came generation. out of it. Yeah. Yeah. 38 yeah. million. That's what about a 10th of the population of the United States. Yeah. I guess they could have done it in Alan Parsons, Nevada, the Alan Parsons project. So, I mean, which also very controversial for a lot of people, just yeah. as controversial as the Manhattan project. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about numbers, it only made sense when it came to the Manhattan Project that security was going to be a top concern due to just how many people were involved. I could see that. Interestingly, some of the security practices that Groves adopted during the Manhattan Project still persist to this day, and the project's secret budget and lack of legislative oversight made it America's first large-scale black budget program. Never mind, most of it was taken over by that group, the S1 Committee. That was just like FDR just kind of said, all right, you're in charge of this thing. You're going to go and do this. And it was just a group of guys that uh, you wouldn't be you wouldn't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They were all just a bunch of famous guys within the government. They were super, super powerful. And they were the they didn't have to answer to anybody but themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, many of the people Groves recruited went on to have extensive careers in the CIA. There's, <gasps> a, there's a lot of this is why. To me, this subject is extremely important to know for people that are into stuff that last podcast also covers, mm-hmm. where you're like, all of this information about the Manhattan Project helps feed my conspiracy theory mind as well, because you start to kind of see how they run something of this size and how it's, which you'll find impossible to keep secret. Impossible. Because the entire world was also doing the same thing at the same time. And the Manhattan mm-hmm. Project had. 150,000 participants within it. So everybody knew what was going on. They talked about the little town. That Not was everybody. Ju- more open is like more of an open secret in certain areas of the country. Los Alamos, the people, when they started, when they arrived, right, the whole town was like, yeah, they're building some kind of atomic bomb. Like they literally right. knew well, something they didn't was going know on. atomic bomb. They, they knew building some kind of a weapon. Uh, they did meet a man in a pork pie hat with a cigarette in his mouth who was like, hello, my name is. Mr. Johnson. Yes, we're yeah. doing some experiments here. And we were like, no, you're super famous nuclear scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer. You're also greatly overestimating the reach of a famous scientist. Well, the kids, they, were, they talked about this, but there was two kids that were like, he was famous. Yeah. He was on like, he was on newspaper. He was like, people knew about this guy. It was just different. I'm also greatly underestimating how smart people used to be and how much they used to read. They used to read stuff. Yeah. And they yes. knew he, he showed up. He was like a celebrity. So it was, it's like they're doing something secret something yeah, yeah. and all of a sudden all these like fuck- a fucking great day to be a kid with a couple of friends get on your bicycles it's the real stranger thing <laughs> absolutely it sounds awesome yeah all of a sudden all these fucking european dudes are just showing up Trippy. in these small towns we in new mexico the wonderful colors of the new mexican backgrounds <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then of course you get those new restaurants it must be a good day to be in los alamos yeah, there's this place called the owl cafe that made a thing called the atomic burger that mm-hmm. was just outside of town that they used to all go eat. It was a green chili burger that they all oh, go I love no, green I, chilies. You know, I love green chili burgers. Me too, I do. I don't need my spice on my burgers. 
I like they, her. Or they call get me gas, man. How do they know I have gas? <laughs> Soup of the day. Well, that's the thing about these security measures. That's the thing about all of the CIA shit, all of the black budget shit. The security measures in no way worked. The Soviets had no less than two active spies within the inner circle of scientists, the toppest <laughs> of top secret. And that wasn't even to mention all the other little spies peppered throughout. Because remember, at the time, they, we, they were our allies. So there were a lot of people, the spies, quote unquote, spies truly involved here were some of Oppenheimer's students who he brought in to be like assistants and people who'd work on various experiments. At the time, they had sort of a naive American-centric communist idea that like, no, we need to share this information with mm. our allies. It's like they're trying to help this humanitarian effort. We should be going and helping them fight the Nazis right now, blah, blah, blah. But it shows with the C. I was watching a great interview with a CIA guy who talks about like the quote unquote human tactics that you have to do to, in order to flip people to give you information. And what they do is very human things. This guy, he, he like this one guy was talking about how he, he was trying to get information from some country. It sounded like it was Iran or something. And he became friends with this guy that was working on some military project. And they started talking. And at some point he floated. He's like, you know, you could always come to America and, you know, we, we could hook you up. And he was like, no, I'm not right. But then the CIA right. dude remained actual friends with this guy for 10 years just waiting. For the day when his shithead boss, if very human, he got the guy got sick of his boss. And he's like, I'm sick of doing this. And he's just like, I got a great way to help you. You just come with me. And so he's like, yeah. I'm helping you. Now it's this, it's this kind of thing. It's like what the cops say about like, let me help you, which yeah. is like never real. Yep. And so these guys got flipped as little spies off of their just straight up, you, you know, naivete. They looked at him being like, they, they're like, you know, they played on these these things. And we learned from the KGB and the KGB learned from us. And we created a fun espionage group family. Yeah. Espionage indeed. And of course, when it comes to the Middle East, when they use text them something very funny, they text back, halal. Mm. H-A-L-O-L, halal. He hasn't heard a single thing in minutes. <laughs> He said, "Get it." Just somebody goes, "Hello, they've been yeah. looking, or they're yeah. talking. They're looking at me. I don't know yeah. what's happening." Yeah, hello, hello. <laughs> you just heard the word Iran, and you stopped no, thinking. I, no, I remember everything he said. It's like literally, yeah, they, just, yeah, man, wanted to work with us. <laughs> he got sick of his boss, and then he came over here and worked with us. Nope. That's how it works. Sure. Well, the worst part about all of these uh, spies, like all these guys working for the Soviet Union, feeding information to the Soviet Union, this was what. McCarthy and all the rest of those yes. assholes used when they were yes. like, even one communist in the State Department is one too many. You know, shit like that. Mm. Because buddy it, had, it had happened. Like this right. one dude, uh, Carl Fuchs. Oh, it was Fuchs. happening. It was yeah. presently happening. Well, yeah. one dude, Carl Fuchs, like, you know, McCarthy would say like, eight years ago, Carl Fuchs fed information to the Soviets and mm. they got the bomb two years before they should have. You know, it's all because it happened. But, you know, of course, America, we're known for overcorrecting. Mm, that's a good term. Yeah. See, that was yeah, the 20-year sort of. war that we just did in the Middle East? Overcorrected. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. 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 But Groves did his best to keep things secure. As far as getting into Los Alamos or any of his, these three secret cities went, each one was perimetered by barbed wire. Almost no one had a telephone, and everyone had badges and driver's licenses with ID numbers, but no names. It was a white badge. Yeah. Anybody with a white badge was allowed because... Oppenheimer was also breaking a bunch of rules, saying yeah, like all the scientists were. The only way for this to work is we need to have a weekly meeting where everybody who's working on everything in this in this space comes together and we talk about it. And Groves was like, uh, no, 
because yeah. it's literally why we do things covertly the way we do them. Well, it's about we compa separate. compartmentalization. Sure, yes, makes sense. Oppenheimer was like, do you want this done now? Or do you want this done five years from now? Yeah. And so they that's what they did. They basically said, okay, fuck the rules for now. But again, it would all deeply punish Oppenheimer in the future. Oh, yeah. No. And everyone at Los Alamos, they all had the same address. P.O. Box 1663 in Santa Fe. And interestingly, oh. anyone born in Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project can prove it. Because even birth certificates issued from that location at that period of time listed P.O. Box 1663 as the address. So funny. Yeah. You could just mail shit to the Manhattan <laughs> yeah. Project. I guess you have to. Yeah. I guess so. I, I'd mail them with some erotic magazines. Floppers. Uh, that's always a dolphin themed. They definitely <laughs> need to be jerked off. Scientists are they horny. Yeah. Oh my god, the, some of the horniest because mm -hmm. they have the egos of an actor, the face of a scientist, and then the desire of just some prisoner. They are very horny. They, they they are are horny. Of, there was a lot of honey, a lot of beavers getting snacked on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, when it came to compartmentalization of knowledge, Leslie Groves was the only person on Earth who had total knowledge of the whole thing. He controlled the pace, the priorities, and the direction of everything major. Wow. In regards to secrecy, the top priority was to keep knowledge from, in order of importance, the Germans, the Japanese, okay. and the Russians. Because just about everyone in the military brass had pegged the Russians as our next big bad just as soon as World War II was over. Yes, mm. it was. Everybody knew that the Russians were the next enemy, except for all of the people that found this literature in college at the time period, mm. which is what Oppenheimer says later on when they are grilling him, when he's basically saying, it didn't seem so serious before the war. It was just ideas, and we were talking. and And I actually never thought about a world controlled by Russia. I just thought we could learn from these, from all of these philosophies. I thought guilty. we could learn. Yeah, you are yeah. exactly. Yeah. As soon as you're not like, because he wouldn't give up other names. And then also, it was a man by the name of Chevalier that was a French professor. It was Oppenheimer's best friend, and he was a card carrying communist. And he did a thing where. Oppenheimer was trying to keep everybody separate, right? Because he's like, listen, I'm already getting enough heat here. Everybody considers me a communist, and it's just because I got thin tie on at this point. And, right. but, and I went to a couple meetings back in the day. But this guy comes up to dinner and basically says, you know, you should sell all of your information to Russia, not even understanding that everything's wired for sound. And so this little yeah. offhanded remark, and both his wife, Kitty, and Oppenheimer was like, no, that's treason. We're not going to do that. But because the question was even asked, mm. he was immediately fucked and yeah. everything was on. Everything was recorded. Yeah. From your grave. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says here I have to talk about something I need to get off my chest and I guess I can share it here. I, I eat mayonnaise for fun. It's a hobby of mine and it's an addiction. And it's a daily weight on my life. How much I need whipped egg whites and oil crammed into my veins. As soon as I wake up, and a lot of people carry around a lot of different stressors, big and small. Some people are presidents. Some people are soldiers. Some people have to eat mayonnaise, especially with hard-boiled eggs, which is what I eat for lunch. But I guess I should share that in therapy. Because therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And what I do is I just add eggs if I have mayonnaise left over. I just continue to add the eggs. But if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I hope they can help me. My God. 
I hope they can help me. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LastPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp! H-E-L-P dot com slash LastPod. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors. It's a waste. Don't waste hours on apps. Besides appetizers, that's the kind of apps I like. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Did you know that empanada is already Spanish? I didn't. Thanks, Babbel. Did you know that burrito is already Spanish? Wow. I just got to learn all the rest. And eventually, I'm going to be eating downtown Mexico. Thanks, Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash left. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash left, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash L-E-F-T. Rules and restrictions may apply. Well, Groves also wanted to keep knowledge of the project away from other nations so that the U.S. would come out of the war with as strong of a position as possible. The only other people who knew we were doing this were the British. But Groves also wanted to keep the knowledge of the project from Congress and to a certain extent, the president. So none of them would or even could interfere. Basically, when it came to the Manhattan Project, FDR went with the policy of set it and forget it. Oh, yeah. Well, why not? I mean, that's what you, that's what is. That's what you do to him. <laughs> you set him and forget him. <laughs> there you go. He's, a, he's the Ron Papil of presidents. No president spared. <laughs> not at all. But perhaps the most consequential of Leslie Grove's security directives, which would heavily influence later decisions on how the bomb was dropped, he insisted that the bomb be a surprise, thus gaining the maximum psychological effect. May I just say one thing? Can we put a smiley face on the bomb? Or maybe we could put like a little, maybe we could put a little tail on it. I mean, it was there. Hi there. Hey there. Whoa there. It's definitely called Fat Man and Little Boy. Yeah. I thought it was, was it Little Boy? Little Boy, yeah. yeah. Little Boy, that's... Ah. They were named after characters in the Maltese Falcon. Fat Man, Little Boy, and Thin Man. I love when they let that dog on the back of that falcon. (laughs) (laughs) People say I was made in the lab. Kissel was made by God. Thank you. (laughs) You know what's interesting? The dog in NeverEnding Story, isn't he a bit of a Maltese falcon? He is. He's a flying Maltese. He is a massive Maltese. I feel the shame. Yes. I feel the shame for the audience. Also, the fucking story did end. Yes. So, oh, yeah. never ending story. Well, what are these credits then? No, it's about the idea of imaginations is the never ending never story. That movie story made me too is sad. That, it is a very sad movie, but the never ending story is the story that we all share in the world of imagination. Yes. We did, we did get hit hard with some sad ass movie, but oh, it yeah. was good for us. Yeah. Now the kids just have the fucking the recession and... Yep. And then they got that movie Cars, which is all about gas prices. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. The hopelessness of having no future. Yeah. That was cars can't reproduce. All of the shows were about that. But all this secrecy and military protocol clashed with some of the scientists who had a hard time operating even within the rules of the academic sector. Hmm. And some of them treated security so casually that they are lucky they did not get shot before the whole thing was said and done. It's what this teaches me is again. That conspiracies work if they are small. 
Like you must con- conspiracy happens in choke points of information that then is just shatters everything. You basically create an up to a shield against any sort of objective look at the information inside of the conspiracy by keeping it between three people, right? Yeah. Like you make it a small deal, like you know JFK, the Secret Service fighting over his body when he's leaving. The conspiracy was happening in that moment, yeah, right. and that's when it moved on. Cover ups happen very fast, very fun. fast. Yeah, the secret, yes. the, yeah, the Secret Service saying like, do not let anyone examine this body because then they will find out we accidentally killed him. And then you look mm. at MK Ultra, which is also uh, a sort another size of this right this size of quote-unquote conspiracy but again everybody knew that we were doing it but the way that they hid that was instead of make doing it out loud like the manhattan project did they just did it real quiet and just gave money everywhere and just if you touched any of that mk ultra money you're now mk ultra yeah well for an example of a scientist not taking security seriously mm. physicist richard Feynman. Once found a hole in the security <laughs> fence surrounding Los Alamos. He was well, a trickster. Yeah, he was. He was found a hole in the security fence. Yeah. He's out for a stroll. Oh, look, there's a hole. So there's ju- a hole. So just for fun, he checked out of the base, snuck back in through the hole, and checked out again. Guys, you wouldn't believe what I was been doing. <laughs> I was walking and I found a hole, and then I walked. Richard Feynman. <laughs> I went in through the hole. I'm going to go back out through the hole. This is Richard Feynman. <laughs> Complex ideas. Yeah. Simple explanation. Yes. Simplify. He didn't go back in the hole. He got out of the hole. You don't know what I did in that <laughs> hole. <laughs> no, he went back to the gate and he checked out again and he kept just going around and around in a circle until someone said, hey, wait a you minute, know, Richard. I don't want to tell you, but this is what I call mousing around. Uh, <laughs> Have you seen any Richard Feynman? I should send you him explaining fire. You would like Richard sure. Feynman. Because yeah. that's uh, what he does. He entertains us boobs. Mm-hmm. Nice. All yeah. right, I'll take it. But he was completely ignoring the fact that a paranoid, trigger-happy soldier could have very well shot him in the head, uh, thinking that he was a foreign saboteur. These scientists are getting too casual. Man, I'm like, mousing around. <laughs> <laughs> now you're fucking dead mousing around. <laughs> like the DJ. Yeah. Oh. Now, Enrico Fermi's nuclear pile on the squash court in Chicago, that had been a proof of concept to show that a nuclear weapon was possible before everyone went to the trouble of building the towns and the factories and the laboratories. Okay. But what Fermi built on the squash court was nothing compared to what the Manhattan Project constructed in the more barren parts of Washington State at Hanford Site, codenamed Site W. Ooh. (laughs) <laughs> Come on. I know. Yeah. I like some fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The death room. Some great. Yeah. Why and Dr. Mr. Shit fucks pancake fuck. There <laughs> we go. Something fun. <laughs> there at Site W in Hanford, Washington, almost 50,000 people, mostly brought up from the South, were hired by the DuPont company to build the site although very few of them knew what they were actually building. Mm. Some thought it was a sandpaper factory. Yep. That sounds like a real answer. Yeah. Well, they said sandpaper factory. factory. Others who had to be fucking absolute morons thought they were building FDR's Winter Palace. Sounds like some of them have been educating themselves on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. In reality, though, Hanford's site was a part of General Grove's scattershot strategy. See, the Hanford site in Washington was charged with processing plutonium, Mm. just in case plutonium was the element needed to use a bomb. The site in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, meanwhile, was processing uranium for the same reason. Los Alamos, meanwhile, was the central site. It was tasked with constructing a practical bomb that could be dropped from an airplane to destroy a German or Japanese city 
should the need arise. That's the keys, being yeah. able to be dropped from an airplane. Because the first, the way they first kind of posited the atomic bomb is that we'll put it in a ship and we'll float a ship because close to the fucking uh, the edge of the land, like where mm-hmm. the, sure. the, as as possible, and then set it off. But apparently, that'd be like bad. That'd be bad because you make a bad. big like tsunami. It's like a whole. There's like a lot of issues. Well, you're gonna you're gonna uh, wake up Godzilla. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, speaking of which, I got and he's gonna be like, let me sleep. I'm snoozing here. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of which, I got one word for you, Fukushima. Oh, Remember yeah. how much radiation that introduced in the ocean that we're still fucking dealing with? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why the fish is tasting so good these days. <laughs> I like a little radiation with my tuna. Sure. Now, in Los Alamos, the atomic bomb was nicknamed the Gadget, probably because talking about the bomb day and night would have been both a security risk and a bit of a bummer. It's definitely a I security guess. risk because okay. they uh, they were really getting kind of like loose with it. Yeah. Well, to the point of it being a bummer, the scientists working on the bomb knew exactly what sort of effects it would have. There is no ignorance to be pleaded here. Okay. Besides producing an explosion that would vaporize anyone caught in the blast, scientists guessed that any person within a thousand yards of the explosion point would suffer severe psychological effects. And not like super cool Incredible Hulk effects either. No, 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 but honestly, I wouldn't like a bunch of Incredible Hulks walking around either. No. No, we're talking. Be, it would be fun if you were the Hulk, but also very difficult. But it's if a curse. Everyone was the Hulk. It yeah. is a curse. Yeah. yeah, it's very much a curse. You know, originally the Hulk would come out at night. <laughs> <laughs> What's the sound of one hand not happy? <laughs> mm, there it is. That's the sound when Marcus talks about comic books that I'm hearing. <laughs> It's a very simple origin story. Yeah. Now, we're not talking Incredible Hulk shit. We're talking melted innards. We're oh. talking bodies mm. decomposing from the inside out before the affected victim even dies. Kind of wish I died first. Yeah, that would have been <laughs> nice. They also knew that the area would remain highly radioactive after the initial blast, slowly and silently killing anyone who just happened to wander into the area. The other countries working on the atomic bomb never talked about radiation sickness. Yeah. But, and this was one of our most closely held secrets. Yeah, we knew Is it. the fact that this thing is going to make whatever land is underneath this thing uninhabitable for like 100 years. Yeah. That's well, great. Depending on which type you use. Yes. Which, yeah, which element which is, you use. Which which certain also, elements have hot, longer half-lives. That's the yes. whole point of Dr. Strange. Love Godolphin G. But then they also the mm. idea of when, how it explodes. like Because that's the tricky part, which is... In order to make it so that we don't have to literally make sure no human lives here again, it has to explode above the site yeah. and not on the site. Well, yeah. now they poison our water with a bunch of other stuff, too. Yep. Yeah. Isn't that exciting? Well, while the plutonium produced at Hanford would be used in the first atomic test, the uranium used in the first atomic bomb was produced, you're going to like this one, Ben, uh-huh. Site X. Yeah, you see, that's cool. Yeah, but it's still just a letter. Yeah, but it's still Site X. Site X. Yeah, yeah. I know. X it's is a, they a put cool, some ramps X too. Yeah. is a cool yeah, letter. Yeah. I was in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. They also, they had a five-man team inventing me like, what if a skate was in one line? <laughs> and uh, make it like a blade? sword. It's a roller sword. A roller blade. No, that's dumb. <laughs> no, like, oh, roller knife. <laughs> there we go. Well, it's Site X. 
four separate methods of producing uranium-235 were being researched simultaneously, each one costing hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. The most effective process, however, involved a contraption called a calutron, which required a 44-acre, mile-long, four-story-high plant that required hundreds of miles of airtight piping all welded together just to make it work. Wow, I think that was actually just put into the new uh, omnibus bill. <laughs> oh, that's a little political humor. <laughs> that was just put into the debt ceiling bill. <laughs> Make the house bigger. <laughs> well, interestingly, when these calutrons were first built at UC Berkeley, they were only allowed to be used by men with PhDs. But with the war on. Pretty hot dicks. <laughs> <laughs> Physically warm penis. <laughs> yeah. But with the war on, the Calutrons in Oak Ridge were operated almost entirely by young women right out of the Tennessee school system. And they did just fine. Rosie the oh, Riveter? You just tell them how to do it. Yeah. Really, the biggest risk with the Calutron. You don't mansplain that. You, you just man, go there. You listen. mansplain the bomb to Listen, you. little lady, all you got to do is sit in your precious little chair, all right? Make sure the atoms go zip, zap, zip, zoop. All right, all right, see you later. See you right? later. Get out of here. Nice bottom. Whoa. This was the 40s. It was. Well, really, the biggest risk with the Calutron was that it involved huge magnets that were so strong that they would smash the insides of your watches if you got too close. Ooh. This, of course, resulted in accidents. On the worst end of it, a guy walked into the room containing an active magnet while carrying a big steel plate. Like he's fucking... Where the fuck did he get that? This fucking Roger Rabbit walks Somebody into the room. this outside in the hall. Why are you laughing it outside? This is the lab. Yeah. The magnet, of course, immediately caught the plate in such a way that the guy carrying it got violently pulled across the floor <laughs> and... <laughs> got pinned to the magnet. It's a fucking cartoon. <laughs> that yeah. sucks, dude. And everyone else is like, turn off the goddamn magnet! Turn off the magnet! And then quite coldly and somewhat cinematically, the scientist in charge said that the war was killing 300 people per hour. And if I shut down that magnet, it's going to take days to restabilize it. So you weigh the lives of thousands of people versus that one man. And besides, he looked over. He's like, the guy's fine. Yeah, he's going, Look at him. help! <laughs> help! <laughs> like I'm on a refrigerator. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like that guy was mousing around. <laughs> yeah, the, the scientist said, look, look, he's just stuck. Get some fucking two-by-fours and pry them off. <laughs> what a, what a dork. Yeah. And tell them not to be dork. such a fucking idiot next time. I could definitely see this being some comedian's grandfather. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Now, amusing incidents aside, it was obvious that the Americans were fucking killing it with the Manhattan Project. And we were the only ally doing so. The British had their own attempt going with Project Tube Alloy. So dumb. Yeah. Bad name. Tube bad Alloy. Name. It's a bad name. Bad name. Oh, God. Yeah. But it was having a hard time getting it off the ground due to the constant German bombing. Therefore, European scientists were getting funneled over to America to work on the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Although none had quite as big of an adventure getting here than famed Danish physicist Niels Bohr, creator mm. of the atomic model we still use today. Oh. I am a bit of a difficult man. <laughs> yes, indeed. See, Bohr was Jewish, and when the Nazis invaded Denmark, he was one of 8,000 Jews to be smuggled out of the country by the Danish underground. Cool. Bohr ended up in Stockholm, unaware that the Gestapo had ordered Bohr in particular to be seized at all costs. 
Hmm. Bohr, however, was not a man known for his discretion, nor his common sense. No, he's a scientist. In fact, it was a small miracle that Niels Bohr even survived childhood, oh. much less Europe during World War II. He's, his brain was for thinking, not for doing stuff. <laughs> you could say the same about all of us, couldn't you? Yep. Now, in Stockholm, Niels Bohr was unwilling or unable, really, to lie low. And mm. things were made even worse by the fact that Niels Bohr was easily recognized because his head was abnormally large. I love history. (laughs) smart. I love history, man, because it is. He just had too big of a head to not be found. I believe it, man. I actually heard boar's head is really good if you slice it thinly. Indeed, I actually think they monopolized the entire meat industry in many parts of this country, and I think it's a substandard meat product. We've already got into this side stories. Please but don't. But you agree with me, Marcus. That Boris is average at best. Oh, yeah, I do agree with you there. Neither, yeah. I, know, I, I, I wish just, I could find a place where I could get sliced ham that wasn't Boris. I don't I know why either one of you we, we knew a move. single thing. <laughs> we have to move on. But, but yeah, about a single thing that matters because oh, yeah. that is both incorrect. Yeah. Well, Bohr was also incapable of shutting his mouth or remembering that he was actually in hiding. Uh. <laughs> for example, whenever the phone in his Stockholm hideout rang, yeah. he would lunge for the receiver before anyone could answer it and say, Yeah, this is Bohr. I'm his Bohr. <laughs> Famous hidden scientist. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Stockholm. <laughs> and so after only a few days, the Swedes knew that if Bohr stayed in Stockholm, he'd either be captured or killed by Nazis before the week was out. Yeah. So they arranged for Bohr to be sent to England via a stripped-down fighter plane called a Mosquito. Now, operations like this take a lot of instruction, especially for a civilian, but Bohr just yapped and yapped through all the instructions that were supposed to help him survive. <laughs> I just feel that there are many ways that a trombone can be played with the nose. No, I am a scientist. Look at me. Everybody listen. I like this guy. And the operation was became even more dangerous when it was discovered that they didn't have a helmet that was big enough to fit <laughs> It's really, it's crazy. <laughs> Think about that. That's yeah. how big your head is. Yeah. Wow. But because Bohr didn't listen, he didn't know that when the mosquito reached altitude, he was supposed to use an oxygen mask. Oh. Therefore, in mid-babble, while they were going up in the air, Bohr very suddenly passed I out. I sometimes feel that metal barrel is a too <laughs> You know what? <laughs> That's a great way to fly. Yeah, Fall the, asleep, pass out. The British crew thought they'd accidentally killed one of the most brilliant minds of the century. So funny. But when they landed, Bohr suddenly woke up alert and chipper, saying that he just had the most wonderful nap. It's just oh, nice to take a break. <laughs> it is. Now, Bohr was extremely important to the Allies, but not just because he was brilliant. He'd also been privy to extensive conversations with Werner Heisenberg about nuclear physics. Mm. Bohr, of course, though, he had retained nothing because he was a fucking awful listener. Mm-hmm. But he was like, but I remember, oh, you better be good at it. I know that, <laughs> absolutely. Well, all Bohr could remember was that he and Heisenberg had talked about uranium fission, and they talked about the morality of researching nuclear reactions during wartime when it was certain that such research could be used to make weapons. All so right, remember, get on with it. Well, Werner Heisenberg went to go talk to him about it and basically said, hey, you should come. The Germans are definitely going to win. You should be working with the Germans. And Neil Bohr was like, I will never, I, I'm Jewish. Yeah. Right. It's not going to work out. No. Yeah. But even so, 
Just based on these conversations, Bohr was convinced that the Nazis were actively working on an atomic bomb. And mm. he thought that this was big fucking news. But he showed yeah. up in England and they Guess said... Guess what, everybody? <laughs> uh-huh. Guess what? Yes. What is this big sucker thing? You made a whole town? <laughs> yes. Well, that's the thing. He showed up in England and they're like, Guess what? We're also working on an atomic weapon. It's and called you're going- tube alloy. <laughs> he said, no, no, no. You're going to America <gasps> and you're going to be working on the Manhattan Project. Wow. He's going to miss all the full English breakfast that he could have had. Yes, best sad. breakfast in the fucking no. world. But the trip to Los Alamos was, of course, another fraught journey. He almost immediately forgot his code name on the train ride to New Mexico. (laughs) And having forgotten his code name, he immediately began using his real name, introducing himself as physicist Neil Bohr. Oh, my name is physicist (laughs) Neil Bohr. Fuck. (laughs) Strawberries. No. Hello, name's physicist Piers No. They gotta give him a name that he'll remember. Something fruit related. What did he like? Shoes. Cleels. Meals. There you go, Cleels. You're Cleels now. <laughs> and he'd also talk to anyone and everyone about nuclear fission. Have you heard talk- about the bomb? <laughs> yeah, we're really making good headway. <laughs> His absent-mindedness was so chaotic that he kept accidentally escaping the armed guard assigned to keep watch. Eventually, it got so bad that Leslie Groves himself had to travel out to escort Bohr the rest of the way. He pretty much just held onto his collar and said, shut the fuck up. Yeah, wow. you're, coming. you're coming with me now. Yeah. Okay. But perhaps Bohr's greatest treasure was a drawing Heisenberg had done of a Nazi heavy water nuclear reactor. But Bohr and the rest of the scientists, they couldn't conclusively say that this reactor could be used to make a weapon. What they did convince themselves of was the possibility that Germany had learned enough about nuclear energy to produce dirty bombs. Man, and Uh dirty bombs at this point, too, are almost, I mean, obviously the atomic bomb is the biggest and worst of all of it, but... Dirty bombs ain't no slouch. No, no. No, you don't want to get messed around with by a dirty bomb. <laughs> no. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. Well, these bombs, which were mixed with radioactive material, they did not have the destructive power of regular bombs, but yeah. they made areas of effect deadly and uninhabitable all the same. Hey, buddy, yeah. what, what do you, what's wrong with you? You're covered in mud. Yeah, dirty bomb. It's dirty bomb. really good. Well, that's great. Really good. But, Was yeah. that the one that you were thinking of and then you abandoned? But right, then you, but then you moving. thought I, to try I, I, it? There are, they've no. stopped. They've, their lips have stopped moving. And I, <laughs> a lot of people say I'm like Neil Bohr. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's true. I got a big old fucking head. Yeah. You do. <laughs> I sleep on planes great. But there's yeah. a part of them that thought that the atomic bomb was kind of like, well, at least the first wave of energy wipe everybody out quickly. Yeah. And then the radiation sickness will set in. So they actually, it was like, well, at least the atomic bomb, we kill you up top. It's mm-hmm. real nice. We're yeah, kind of being nice. We're kind of being nice with it. Now, there was no evidence for German dirty bombs. But nevertheless, Manhattan Project officials had secret nuclear defense systems installed in quite a few major American cities. They almost deployed teams of soldiers with Geiger counters on D-Day in a scuttled plan called Operation Peppermint. See, now that's fun. I like Operation <laughs> Peppermint. Operation yeah. Peppermint. Yeah, they uh, they shipped out Geiger counters. They included right, that's all, the, like, that's where the Bastard Brigade had covered yeah. that one of the guys in the Bastard Brigade was... Con- that was one of his jobs, so yeah. that he had to go and try to t- check every bomb hole mm. for radiation. Yeah. And also, back- I didn't know that Mo Berg tried to kill Werner Heisenberg. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that next episode. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
But of course, once mm. we started thinking that maybe the Germans might use dirty bomb tactics, we started thinking about how we could do something along the same lines. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. And yeah. of course, that deadened us even further as to what we could be capable of unleashing upon civilians. Okay. At one point, Oppenheimer and Enrico Fermi enthusiastically discussed using the isotope strontium-90 to poison Germany's food and water supplies in a preemptive strike. Although Oppenheimer wrote that it wouldn't be worth it unless they could poison at least half a million people. This was a real plan. Mm. They really. It, well, it was more. Is, it was more of an. They they later said that like it was an academic exercise. But yeah, nah. Uh, it were, was in the Manhattan Project. Everything was an academic exercise. It was extremely serious. Yes. All they got to do is get Monsanto on the case, and they'll Whoa. be poisoned for sure. Monsanto was involved in the Manhattan Project. That's why me and Neil Young don't like him. I get it. <laughs> well, these fears were, of course, only made worse by Nazi blustering. Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, always the troublemaker, Ugh. he announced that Germany would soon unleash a revolutionary uranium torpedo on the Allies. We will spread that uranium torpedo all over the chest of the Allies. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. And as we know, Germany was nowhere close to such a weapon. But the Allies didn't know that. They were on track to produce an atomic bomb by 1945. They'd started work on it in 1942. That's crazy. Yes, but they were working on the assumption that the Nazis had been on a steady track of production since 1939. Mm. So they're shitting themselves. Any day now, they're going to have the weapon. Right. Now, as Leslie Groves saw it, part of his job in constructing the bomb was to also actively prevent Germany from getting the bomb. Okay. So he and his deputies came up with a plan to deploy their own intelligence units made up of scientists and soldiers who could decipher documents and interrogate captured scientists. These guys were going Ooh. behind enemy lines. Yeah, what it's we'll a crazy do is story. We will hide all of the secrets in hot sauce. <laughs> There's no way the German can handle the hot sauce. I think it's important. We'll put it inside this case of salt. <laughs> They'll never see it. Well, the Germans have a little bit of salt. It's a little bit. A little, a little bit. They don't want the hot sauce. No, no, no. And we'll get more. Oh, no, there's a, there's a hot, there's a general brought hot sauce. I actually have it right now from a buddy of mine who made it and sent it to the studio. It's like a nice light. It's kind of a Bavarian hot sauce. It's very tasty. It's a little bit of a medium range hot sauce. Do they have it in the 40s? I'm looking for it. Do they have it in the 40s? When was it made? Do my time traveler? Am I a time traveler? I don't know. I just don't think of Germans and hot sauce. Yeah, I don't either. They, they, also, they have hot sausages. Buddy? Buddy? <laughs> Hey, buddy. How, how, Why are you calling me on the phone? I'm, I'm here. I'm here on the show with you. Why are you calling me? You just did a the phone call. We'll, uh, we'll like, talk about sausages later. People don't Click. know that you're doing that. Click. <laughs> well, we'll hear the story of the German. Well, we'll. Well, God damn it. I don't know. <laughs> We will hear the story of the intelligence units that are made up of scientists and soldiers on the next episode. Okay. But meanwhile, President Roosevelt was starting to use stronger language when discussing the Axis powers. We're going to rough them up. We're <laughs> going to push them down. By 1943, he was saying that the only way the war would end was with the unconditional surrender of Germany, Italy, and Japan. Therefore, unconditional surrender became official allied policy. And that mm. word unconditional would become incredibly important. Now, by 1944, U.S. forces on the Pacific front were making serious headway in taking and holding the small islands leading to Japan, which were crucial to establishing air force bases to bomb Japanese cities on the mainland. Cool. Most crucial were the islands of Saipan and Tinian. Saipan was taken first in a horrifically bloody battle that resulted in the loss of 3,000 Americans 
and tens of thousands of Japanese. Wow. This is one of those things where, you know, you, you listen to Marcus talk about these subjects. Sure. And he likes them. You know, like, I find them interesting. He's doing yeah. the fascinating. War, what is it good for? Marcus's, Marcus's intellect and, yes, his, Marcus's and his hobbies. research. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I find it extraordinarily interesting. Yeah. But it's almost like you like the world that we live in because you enjoy all the violence. I also enjoy utopian sci-fi such as Star Trek. Yeah. Star Trek is full of violence. Yeah, of course, but it's well, also... It's stunned. It's utopian? <laughs> Star Trek is utopian? Back yes. on Earth, it's utopian. Everyone's having a great time back on Earth. They didn't even Earth. let Worf fucking control the goddamn controls, even if everyone else died. They absolutely let Worf control everything in Deep Space Nine. He became more of a commander. He got a lot more... Well, he wasn't the commander. Why do you have to work so much harder Am than Am I going to give you a second nerd alert on other people <laughs> that are not me? Okay. No, Cisco's still commanded the Defiant, but, you know, but Worf did get a promotion when he was assigned well, to Deep Space Nine. And then Cisco did the thong song. Now, about 29,000 of those Japanese deaths have been soldiers who had refused to surrender under any circumstances. And that was pretty much the case for every single island the Americans took. Iwo Jima. Right. Goddamn, there's a reason why we talk about Iwo Jima to this day. Well, it is true, right, that this was their emperor or was their god. So this would be it's, a, it's, a, it's somewhat it's of an oversimplification of it. Richard Feynman. They were very dedicated. They were extraordinarily they were not dedicated. Fucking well, cower. They were not going to turn. They weren't going to surrender. I no. mean, from these massive battles, they would have thousands upon thousands of casualties, so just, and you might capture yeah. like a dozen Japanese soldiers. It seems like also, a perfect storm of immense chaos. They don't want to surrender, and then we're like, "Bitch, you have to." You unconditionally. have to. And you'll, well, there's there's some gray in there as it goes because as the war goes on and people start going hungry and they can't mm. eat eventually that fever will go away it will begin to wear off yeah, as they yeah. go um dan carlin supernova in the east really does talk about it's incredible this build up extremely yeah. in heavy heavy details all from the japanese perspective yeah. okay. and, and he talked and he has a great way of like explaining the japanese like to explain the japanese mindset when it comes to warfare do it yeah you say yeah he, he says the japanese are just like anybody else only more so. You get it? The more so than anybody else. I actually Richard have a question. About their, I have a question about their payment issues, Dan hmm? Carlin. Dan well, yeah, Carlin. No, he's Difficult getting, to get the episodes. Well, he's he's buying a paywall because he deserves the money. He works very hard on the show. And he's I was also, trying to get an episode, and I couldn't get the episode. He's also an old school guy. I mean, he's been doing podcasting since 2007. I don't think he's ever shown the top of his head. Never <laughs> seen him. He, him he's and, the, him and, and Oppenheimer are very, very similar. Yeah. They're, okay. they're hat-based people. Yeah, Carlin's a hat-based guy. Even when he, he is. Was, yeah, he is. But hey, you know what? More power to him. It yes, keeps his absolutely. knowledge. Yeah. I wanted to listen to the episode. That's all. Yeah. But that's the thing about Saipan is that 14,000 of those casualties, 14,000 of those deaths, mm -hmm. those were civilians. Oh, yeah. Many of those civilians were accidentally burned to death in civilian shelters by Marines because the shelters looked almost identical to military bunkers. And it was policy, or at least I get, yeah, and it was policy to clear bunkers with flamethrowers loaded with napalm fuel as right. quickly as possible. That's just a way to clear a bunker. Is it... Mm, did they not like care enough to really check? Uh, no, because they would, if you opened up a bunker and you did not immediately attack the Japanese soldiers as fast as you possibly could, they would kill you. So, I mean, the Japanese sold, the Japanese were absolutely a, an incredibly formidable enemy. No, I know. I just feel like they could have checked a couple of the houses and not it, burned it, down so many say, civilians. But, it seems uh, like it's complicated. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to say that it was justified or anything no. like that. And of course, it's this, bad. And it's of course, bad, but, uh, but it's war, yeah. man. Yeah. And of course, this policy became much worse in Vietnam when they started burning down entire villages yeah. and they started killing entire populations just, just in case they might 
and be hiding a Viet Cong somewhere. I know these somewhere. guys had to come back and immediately buy a microwave, get married, have a child. You know what I mean? Like, just immediately. Immediately. That's just the forget most stressful all that. part. Yeah, it was That's so difficult. But also, this was DuPont as well, right? They're the ones who created the flamethrower. Was that DuPont or J&J? Or, Can't it was one of these sure. motherfuckers. Yeah, I, I think it was, um, remember... Um, Parker Bradley. Milton Parker Bradley. <laughs> I, well, they made, they made the goddamn Ouija board. Uh, they did. They well, made the Ouija. Well, to the point of them just coming back and buying microwaves and having families and all that, like, when you talk about guys who took Saipan, uh, they are, in World War II documentaries, when you see soldiers talk about battles they've been in, like, they're never, like, they're just like, yeah, you know, we went in. And yeah, that Texas was Texas Speed, he was from Montana. We <laughs> went down there. Bunch of Bunch of Texas. It's what he said. Yeah. It's just something about it. It's just hat. He's yeah, a hat he's on him. Yeah. But Saipan rattled these dudes. Mm. And this is the reason why. As far as the rest of the people go, as far as the rest of the Japanese civilian casualties go, numbers vary, but at least a thousand Japanese civilians killed themselves in advance of the American military because they were told that the Americans were coming to rape, torture, castrate, and murder any Japanese civilian they found. So rather than be subjected to what sounded like hell on earth, at least a thousand people threw themselves mm. from a perch that is now named Suicide Cliff down to the jagged rocks below. So many jumped that the waters ran red with blood. Mm. And what rattled the guys, what rattled these fucking Marines, was that they had to sail through a sea of broken bodies mm. just to get to shore. Before we Ooh. started killing them. Like, literally, we are we rolled into watching them jump off a cliff. And mm. fuck, and like and it's a, it's just a lot. It's really fucked up. Because yeah. we, we didn't do the, the, the rape, torture, and castrate, but we will set you on fire. <laughs> so at least there is that. Yeah, you we will vaporize you and create yeah. action. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, it doesn't sound like a very fun ride to me. No. no. But with the fall of Saipan, the war was effectively lost for the Japanese, and anyone with half a brain in the Japanese military knew it. Saipan put B-29 bombers within range of the Japanese mainland, and it was from this point that America was able to retake the Philippines from Japan three months later. After the Philippines were retaken, it was only a matter of time. Mm. Saipan was also important, the Battle of Saipan was important, because it changed the way the Japanese population saw the war. News of the loss got around, mm. even though the Japanese government tried to keep it under wraps. And anyone familiar with the surrounding geography could see that if they had taken Saipan, the American forces were pretty much unstoppable. In other words, many Japanese started seeing that Japan was going to lose. And quite a few of them weren't as sold on the idea of fighting to the last man, woman, and child as America believed them to be. Because truly, again, they're also starving to death. Yes. They've been on a, in a full-on embargo across the line. They can't it's get anywhere. Years, they can't right? get years anything. And, and so get slowly but surely fucks with the morale of a country. Yeah. If you, that's how you do it. If yeah, you absolutely. really want to fuck with somebody, Civ 6. Yeah. You raid. You take out the food. You take out all the production. It's the only way to do it because then they can't make the stuff anymore and they can't fight you anymore. Mm -hmm. But most consequently, the taking of Saipan was the prelude to the taking of the island of Tinian. Here, Marines took the island partly by using 24 mechanized flamethrowers affixed to what were called Satan tanks. Yeah, Satan, Whoa, Satan, Satan, Satan tanks. Man, you give me one Satan tank, I'm gonna lot of I'm gonna get a lot of stuff figured out by the next debt ceiling. I thought you wanted to kill Dozer. No, but if I had I a flamethrower, it used to be cool. It's not gonna no. be good for the brand. No, Satanism's yeah, you, under heat. You shoot. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's a part. Yeah. Right. 
That's a fart. But, you know, it's interesting with the embargoes. Civilians are always the ones on the front lines of the ones who get fucked over. North Korea is going through a similar thing right now. Mm -hmm. People are just dying in droves. And it's part of the strategy of, like, make them super hungry. They will overthrow their government. Oh, yeah. But it's just kind of or they don't. Yeah. But it just kind of sucks because, again, it's just the civilians that get fucked. You know, every every flamethrower is just a fart gun. But then you put a flame at the end of it. If you have Mm. a lot of hot sauce. (laughs) But after the island was taken... It was on Tinian that the Americans would build the largest airbase in the world at the time. Hmm. From there, America would launch a little plane <gasps> called the Enola Gay, which would truly introduce hell on earth to the Japanese. And how brave it was for a plane to come out at that time period when <laughs> the whole world was against it. It was named after his mother. His mother was named Gay. Yeah, she was a massive lesbian. <laughs> It's Pride Month. <laughs> and it's with that hell on earth and the covert operations concerning the German atomic program that we'll return Woo! next week with part three of our series on the Manhattan Project. And again, don't worry. We're going to get to the sloughing. <laughs> oh, my God. I am good. I like the skin on my body not to be boiling. I like the innards to be nice and 98 degrees. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And you want to keep them at a simmer. And yeah. I'll, I'll say, well, it'll probably be episode four when we truly get to the sloughing. You know? Yes. Yeah. So, but just yes. this right. way, though, sloughing's a coming. It's sloughing's a but coming. But this is, a, again, very history channel, but I think it's important to, to learn this shit. I, yeah. it's, as a person that, like, again, if you're into woo-wee-woo topics... We're going to get to aliens. Mm-hmm. Don't you fucking worry. Well, you know what I was thinking it's, about? It all, it's all legit. It's the same mechanisms. I mentioned this on Sirius. The people of Heaven's Gate, man, if they were alive today. Ugh. You know, they just fucked it up with the hail bop. They would have. They This is their oh. prime. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, dude. Marshall yeah. Applewhite would have, if he would have just hung on, what was that, 15 years ago now? Oh, it's like, oh, my God, more than you're that. You're saying 1997 is oh my 15 God, years bro. ago? Yeah, everything, is, everything is 15 <laughs> years ago to me. Yo, can you imagine <laughs> him just old. being like, when they blow the, when they blew the four, that one weekend when they blew the four objects out of the sky, just being like, well, that was supposed to be our ride. And oh, now it's yeah, gone. that's true, too. Yeah. That's a good way to keep pushing yeah. the envelope, like yeah. keep up oh. moving the goalposts. And now he could just be going, see? See? Yeah. See? See? And yeah. now, and then everybody's just got to wait a little bit longer, and then a little bit longer, and a little bit longer, and then all of a sudden, everyone's dead. There you go. Cool. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for listening. Um, go to Ben Kissel One, my Instagram. I got a couple of dates. I can't wait to see you all in July. Again, front uh, row. Put a put where you're from. Net. If you wear a shirt that says where you're from, what country you are, what race you are, Kissel's <laughs> gonna fucking he's ready to roast. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm ready to roast. You know, I love my roast mode. Uh, do we have speaking of roast, Spring Hill Jack Coffee? Spring Hill Jack Coffee, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, oh, yeah, do yeah, we yeah. have any other announcements? No, not right now. Well, I'd say Z2comics.com, uh, go and pre- get the last comic book on the left of uh, issue three. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's we just got the proof for it's it. It's so it's good. Incredible. Both uh, both Henry and I have yeah. stories that we've written uh, in on this one. one. Ben's yeah, working Kessel's on one. Got I got my computer with me now. I'm going to yeah. start click-clacking on that. That's nice. Um, and uh, you know, we got a new episode of No Dogs in Space out where we did a bit of a coda to our Monk series where I cover another uh, band who did Vietnam protest music but they were a very dark group of uh, GIs, active GIs yeah. called the Covered Wagon Musicians who had a little song called Napalm Sticks to Kids. I guess, they, 1972. I guess they, not really upbeat then, is it? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. Keep on supporting all the shows here on the last podcast network and our couple of shows that we do on Sirius. Thank you all so much for listening. Hail yourselves. Hail the Satan tank. The Satan tank. <laughs> Again. Hail me. I would be, I don't know if you're, if you're a warrior and you're like, I'm in the Satan tank. Is it cool or horrifying? I think it's cool, but I think it's very hot. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. I, I think it's fine. 
It's a light tank, so you okay. are going to get. It is going to be hot. That's what we want. Yeah, we're going to shot it. Nice. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O.